This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio, and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane. Snow is glistening, a beautiful sight, we're happy tonight, walking in a winter wonderland, gone away is the bluebird, here to stay is a new bird, he sings a love song as we go along, walking in a winter wonderland. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Oh, 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 and welcome to the, <laughs> the, the, the fourth annual Inglorious <laughs> Trexperts holiday special with our, our, our very special elves are here. That, that, uh, that sounded like the time that Mark got hit by that rolling uh, fan. Rolling thunder <laughs> that, by that fan on their scooter. Son of a bitch. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Let me the tell you. Kamikaze fan. Yeah, exactly. Kamikaze. Man, Kamikaze. that makes me wish the final countdown Kamikaze. was on this list. The zeros coming Wait, in on it's my not? knee. On my knee. Yeah, that's a How little spoiler. How that happen? Uh -oh. Splash the zeros happening this time? Oh, <laughs> I know. I know. But, you know, if we were doing the best uh, Inglorious Trek Prince Holiday Special 67, when we do best scores, I'm sure final countdown will be on that one. <laughs> a, uh, a little yeah, that, the song by Europe. So welcome to our holiday elves. 
He's the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood, the hit series on Netflix. You also know him as the writer of X-Men First Class and Thor, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. Yo, ho, ho. And a bottle of rum. That was a little more pirate than Santa Claus, I and think. A, but that's okay. Pirates a man who gave not nothing but holiday tidings throughout the year. Our good friend, our, 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 our expert, Trexpert. And of course, he is the proprietor, the owner, the raconteur of the Burnett work. Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett is back. I'm Mr. Heat Miser. I'm Mr. Sun. I'm Mr. <laughs> Green Christmas. I'm Mr. 101. <laughs> and I'm the Burgermeister Burgermeister. That's a different special, <laughs> but it's okay. And I wanted to be a dentist. <laughs> and he still does. Is it safe? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, we've been doing this. It's hard to believe now. Four years. The first year we did the 50 greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. Then we did the 100 greatest Star Trek moments of all time. Then last year, in a very controversial break with our previous specials, we did the 101 greatest TV, sci-fi TV episodes of all time. And we just finished it last week. So... um now we return with our new holiday special in Glorious Trexpert's holiday special, Sci-Fi Movies 101. Hey, it's 101 you know, of the best sci-fi movies ever made. I have to tell you what's so great about our lists. Uh, and I can tell you this, at least with respect to the 50 greatest Star Trek episodes and the 100 greatest Star Trek moments of all time, that since we recorded those podcasts, those lists have not changed. <laughs> they're they're, they're wow. not even evergreens. You could you could run uh, it today. Son <laughs> of a <Wow>. bitch. <laughs> Miller. It's 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 etched in stone. Like it's, the like the the, the like tablets of stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, this is this is really exciting because of course we're here to talk about great sci-fi movies. The foundation on which Star Trek was built. Foundation you, is not one of them. No. A lot of you will remember that, you know, when Gene Roddenberry first created Star Trek, him and Bob Justman, Eddie Melkis and the gang, they ran a bunch of inf movies that were influences on yeah. them, uh, including Forbidden Planet, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, Day the Earth Stood Still, these, and Forbidden Planet. These were all movies that influenced Star Trek. And they did the same thing with Next Generation, and that included many of the same movies but they wanted to update it with more recent films. So, of course, they included uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and uh, most improbably, Ice Pirates. It's <laughs> a true story. <laughs> I can promise I love you, Ice Pirates. I think it's unlikely Ice Pirates will be on our list, nor Solar Babies or Space Hunter Adventures to Forbidden Zone. But, but I don't what? know. What about Heartbeeps, Mark? What about Heartbeeps? <laughs> Again, for best scores, John Williams. So we'll I have to tell you, back to that. Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Great movie. I don't know if it's going to be on our list or not, but it's great. Well, we'll, we'll find great. out. We'll you find see? out. Now, you may be asking yourself at home. Is he sitting under the tree? This is not my uh, beautiful house. Maybe, <laughs> or, or, or in the in the in the in the, the light of the menorah, the flickering light of the menorah. You may be asking yourself, what makes a sci fi movie eligible on the special? Well, I'm glad you asked. We uh, said so. First, <laughs> we, said number one. we said so. No, because we've uh, seen it. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I've been there. There's uh, uh, fantasy movies are not eligible. So movies like uh, Rosemary's Baby, um, um, movies that we absolutely you know love, Halloween, um, Risky Business. These movies are not eligible <laughs> because they are fantasy movies. Um, but uh, I don't dude, think I Risky Business, Business is the risky same Business kind is of fantasy. Real. Yeah, it is real. <laughs> but um, so also now horror films are not. Uh, eligible as I I, I just uh, I, I either um, <laughs> unless. unless unless they have a sci-fi element so like if, if 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 they're aliens from outer space or something then they're eligible if if uh, you know it's just a serial killer at, at a summer camp not eligible okay so well never mind we'll get there unless but, it's a uh, summer camp in space but you know what That's that movie or a space camp. So, for instance, Jason X, Jason X or exactly. would be now, eligible. But look, Jason Takes Manhattan, not so much. Space Camp with a Friday the 13th movie. I'm not, I don't mean Jason X. That's a pretty good pitch, guys. Let's go sell it. <laughs> Let's go sell I, it I, right would, now. But the problem is it would have to have the original cast. Yes. Yeah, now, the yeah. question is, Jason, <laughs> Jason goes See to hell. The galaxy. Jason goes to hell is horror and fantasy, but not sci-fi. So that would not be eligible. It would not be. Right. No, it would, it would not. not be eligible. You can have all the fantasy you want, but if it doesn't have the sci-fi element, it's not going in the countdown. Not going in the countdown. This is like Casey Kasem. This is true. We, we, we have a, a criteria, a very strict criteria for our films. And uh, and I, I, I you know, the, the big question, I know that a lot of people at home are wondering, and I can't answer it until the very end. Will Star Trek three, the search for Spock be in the top one oh one? The word we'll is find no. out. Therefore, we're going anyway. <laughs> because, uh, you <laughs> know, there are a lot no, of... Because it's a fantasy film. I want to remind you that if you haven't gotten enough holiday treats or you're disappointed with your gifts, Inglorious Trexperts will be bringing you the ultimate holiday gift uh, this new year, which is a commentary from the four of us on Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So oh, stay yeah. tuned. We're going to bring you a very special <laughs> treat in the new year. So uh, because you've been naughty and nice, <laughs> which is the way we like it. So um, we're going we're to reward you with uh, with a commentary on Star Trek three. We will be the givers of pain and delight. Exactly. There you go. There you go. So, um, guys, before we get going, it's been a long time since the four of us have been together on the podcast. I got to I got to ask you, what are you asking for this holiday season? Darren, you know, Ashley, I, I'm going to be asking for more time. <laughs> Much like uh, what Catherine Jane, Darren, what time, do you need time, more time I have for? No time. Many, many things. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I'm asking for that. Um, I'm asking for the ultimate edition of Star Trek, the motion picture. I want to see all the cuts, the director's edition, the ABC version, the, the theatrical version un, uh, unblemished all <laughs> memory wall all the time <laughs> and i want to see uh with lots of special features and um and i i i cannot i cannot wait until your project comes to fruition so very excited me neither but in the meantime i think for christmas i'll settle for a 4k transfer with incorrect color correction um but did i say that out loud no i did not not at all um I uh, I have the greatest enthusiasm for this thing. Right, Rob. What are you, what are you looking forward for the holidays? What, what what's on your list? 
Well, I'm <clears throat> I'm hoping that I get my X06 Catherine Janeway 1/6 scale bespoke figure, Mark. Um, X06 is a new high-end company. They're only making Star Trek six scale figures. That's it. That's all they do. And uh, they put out Data and Picard. And their next releases are Janeway, Seven of Nine, and the Holographic Doctor from Voyager. When are they going to put out a release we want? Well, look, man, <laughs> I mean, I'm supporting them because they're the only people that are making any Star Trek product that I'm interested in. That's oh, wait. Fair. You know, there's, you know, I mean, in terms of stuff to buy. I've seen, I've seen uh, the, the samples. They do look amazing. So I'm so excited. And I can't wait till they start doing things like the Telosian or... Um, uh, you know, things that I actually would like to buy. I, I just want to give them a shout out because uh, in terms of their tailoring, I mean, it's kind of strange to talk about tailoring for a six scale action figure, but <laughs> but credit where credit is due. Uh, they do a great job so far. The first thing is, as you, very impressive. Uh, now that you mentioned them, people listening to the podcast regularly will notice that we did mention them in our Trexperts holiday gift guide we did we did and uh they're doing an amazing job and if they're successful hopefully like i said they'll do figures we want so that would be great and if uh, they're also like to get the large models uh the 2001 models of the aries 1b and the pan am clipper are being released in a large scale plastic model versions and i want those too but they're not going to be out by christmas exo 6 is also um attempting to build a makeshift solar sail that if successful <laughs> will help generate power well, you know, it's funny because I was going to say what, what they should make since they're doing such a great job of picking the figures. They should do Captain Styles, but maybe instead of Captain Styles, they should do VJ from, as long um, as there's a from swag, Star Trek VJ 4. Armitrage. VJ Armitrage, Captain VJ Armitrage. And you could double him up as like an octopusy figure, too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then he gets, All you have you to know, do is get a new costume, get some yeah. custom design. You know, well, they are wardrobe. experts at their... It's, it's not a terrible idea to do a collection of captains you don't like, like Captain <laughs> Styles, Captain Harriman. I mean, come on! It's I'm waiting for the Jellico action. Yeah, I would no, love. No, no, actually, I, like I love Jellico. I would love to get. I would get it done. Yeah, it'd be like, it'd be like talking Tina. You just pull it, get it done wherever get you go. You just have your little Jellico on your shoulder. Right. Get it done. Something competent. I wish I was in charge. It's like, I want action figures of like my entire alt crew of the USS Enterprise. I want Jellico. I want Ensign Rowe. I want Commander Shelby. I want that show. I want it now. That's I, what I want. I want all those action figures. Yeah, See, me too. I want to put them in a cage and make them fight. If your six did announce they're doing mirror universe figures, but they didn't say which. You know what? It's, like, I would like people to do this universe before they do the mirror universe. Yeah. It's you know, just, it's just mirror checkoff. <laughs> your agonizer please i, I look I, i'm just happy to get him you know i know rob happy to get him because those of you watching on the electric now channel can see rob's uh observatory in the background you can see there's not much rob hasn't gotten you know it's like <laughs> oh this is just a fraction <laughs> fraction this is only one small sample now, I just want to say all you people who are sitting there saying what dicks we are for saying all these things. We're the idiots who went out and bought all the space 1999 stuff this year. So what do we know? We Come got on, the man. That the shout out to 1612. Their 12 yeah. scale, their 12 scale uh, uh, action figures are coming out. Commander Koenig is coming out in a space suit. Yeah, I know. They great. They're doing a hell they of do, a job. They, they are I want the commemorative swing line stapler that looks like 
one of the weapons. You think you're so funny. Yeah. Well, he's just yeah. jealous that he doesn't. He's the only I one mean, on the that God doesn't have one. He's yeah, the only actually one. want it. <laughs> but, like, but they do have more. They do understand. have more in stock. It's 1612. You can buy them now. Actually, oh. you should buy it. Okay. Darren, we can all be cool. Yeah. On a recent episode, Darren showed off the com lock and how it works. It's pretty awesome. Yep. Nice. Now, if I took mine out of the box, I could do that too. But take I, it out of the box, let it breathe. I need, right. I need, I need to do that. I need to. Did you buy that. that for an investment, Mark? Are you going to get? Uh, is Isaac going to college on that com lock? Come on. No, you know what? I, I actually, um, the problem was when I ordered it, I was really excited, and then two years later, when it arrived, <laughs> I was less excited about it. And I, I'm going to open it, but I figured, well, I've already waited two years for this to show up. Maybe I'll wait. Open so, it on the last day of Hanukkah. You know what? I think I will. It'll be a treat to myself. Yeah. 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 Because Space 1999, like the oil in the temple, is on and on all these years without its flame being dimmed. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. So what are we doing? 101 greatest sci-fi 101 greatest Something sci-fi like movie ever. Well, Shit, are we is- recording already? Yeah. Oh, we are. Oh, OK. Good. Cool. Cool. Yeah. OK. Well, guys, this is we really ourselves quite the. Um, you know, quite the task this year. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what these films are. And of course, as always, we invite your reaction on social, uh, on Twitter and Inglorious Trek, Instagram and Inglorious Trek Spurts on Facebook. Um, and because uh, I'm sure you have your opinions as well. And uh, presumably uh, you will share them with us. I know uh, Rob's very interested in what his audience says, me, <laughs> but um but we'll be interested in hearing what uh, what you have to say. But as the we are the Trexperts, but being a Trexpert, as we said, is built on a diet of great science fiction and novels in, in movies and television. So without any further ado, it's the Trexperts holiday special sci-fi movies 101 countdown. And to start us off at number 101, it's Rob Burnett. Well, I have to say. Uh, 1982 was a great year for genre entertainment. We all know the famous movies that came out, whether it was Poltergeist or Blade Runner or Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. But there's an unsung film that I saw at the Seattle International Film Festival that kind of blew me away. And it was Slava Sukerman's film, Liquid Sky. You wanted to know where I'm from? Mayflower style. I was taught that my prince would come and he would be a lawyer and I would have his children. And on the weekends we would barbecue. And all the other princes and their princesses would come and they would say, delicious, delicious. Oh, how boring. Liquid Sky is set in sort of the New York underground punk 
fashion scene because, you know, that's where people reside. And Anne Carlisle plays both the male and the female lead in this movie. And it is basically about a punk rock model, actually two models that uh, live and work in this scene. But unbeknownst to them and unbeknownst to our lead actress, an alien spacecraft the size of a dinner plate has landed on the roof of her apartment in New York City. And this alien spacecraft is has an alien in it that feeds off the opiates produced by the human brain at the moment of orgasm. And uh, if you're in proximity to this alien and you climax, it will shoot a crystalline shard into your brain, killing you as it devours the opiate that you produced at the cl- moment of climax. This doesn't sound like a good deal at all. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's look, it's pray we uh, don't alter it further. Ashley <laughs> thinks this movie should be number one, by the way. <laughs> director Superman, director Superman said that while living in the Soviet Union uh, under communist rule, this was a movie that reflected how he thought New York City would be like having never been here before. He wasn't wrong. Uh, yeah, he's not off by much. <laughs> no. So, I mean, I've always loved this film. Superman did the music and Carlisle was incredible. Uh, the fashion, the punk music, everything about this movie. I, I, I was blown away by this. Yes, it's incredibly low budget. And um, it, it, it is surprisingly uplifting at the end. But it is one of the weirdest science fiction movies I've ever seen. And it's it stuck with me. And thank God that Vinegar Syndrome, the beautiful home video company, Vinegar, Vinegar Syndrome, rescued the film. There was a, a DVD put out of the movie a long time ago. And I thought the negative was lost forever, but vinegar syndrome found it and put it out with an incredible extras package on Blu-ray. So you can, you can see it. It's a great day. And it's a wacky movie, but beware if you enjoy the movie too much, you get a shard into your brain. brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, liquid sky was a huge cult movie back in the early eighties. It played at the Waverly um, in Greenwich village for over a year. In that sense, it was like uh, it was a kind of cult film like Rocky Horror was in, in New York. Um, it came out uh, on, on home video. People didn't know what to make of it. Super low budget, but just absolutely a bizarre. And it was at a time where um, the East Village was really being captured in films like Susan Seidelman's Smithereens. And um, it was very different uh, from the way it is now. You know, it was a little dangerous. It was really arty and bohemian. And um, and the center of sort of the, the alt world. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's it, it's an acquired taste, this movie. It's not for everyone, but it, it's really out there. And it really took, you know, like the Toteville, it took somebody coming from another country <laughs> to really come here and 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 this weird perspective on America. You know, in this case, uh, the, the DP was a, a Russian immigrant, the, the uh, costume designer. Uh, the director, obviously, and it's bizarre. It's it's bizarre. It, it's really a weird, weird, weird film. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people today would look at it and turn it off in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. But yeah. Um, well, then those people will not get a crystalline shard to their brain. Yes. No, they won't. But if, if you find it um, and it speaks to a time that is long gone where independent filmmaking could <laughs> give us these things uh, now, I think audiences would probably reject it but at the time it was really exciting to see 
Well, it was a time where you could make an independent film for no money and it would be supported theatrically. And it also wasn't about anything. You know, now to get taken seriously as an indie film, you have to be about something, right? Right. You know, and this was just completely bizarre. And it wasn't about anything. It was it was just a, a escapist insanity, uh, you know, almost Lynchian in a sense. Well, and also in a world that back then, I mean, New York, it's like the the, the sleazy New York crime thrillers of the 70s sort of gave way to these bizarre, um, you know, like Frank Henlotter's basket case, the horror film basket case. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you just never knew what was going on in New York, man. If there were aliens on the roof in dinner plate sized spacecraft or you wouldn't notice them. You had a you had a, a crazy Siamese twin that was a misshapen mass of flesh. Tell you what you did notice going on in New York, six o'clock, eleven alive, Star Trek every night. Quetzalcoatl. Q. Yeah. The winged serpent. That's Terrific. Right. Okay. Well, that was great. That's a great way to start us off at 101. Um Number 100. A lot of people will um, I have no no doubt they quibble about uh, this film being on our list of great sci fi movies. Um, But uh, and and, and, you know, it's it's interesting because, of course, this is part of a big franchise. Uh, It would rarely be on the top of anyone's list. Uh, And yet here it is, the sole uh, film in that franchise to make our list. And of course, I'm talking about Ian Fleming's James Bond in Moonraker. From Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. What exactly are you up to here, Drax? Moonraker 1, liftoff. Moonraker 2, liftoff. Moonraker 3, liftoff. Moonraker 4, liftoff. city in space. James Bond and the treacherous Dr. Goodhead. Despite your efforts, my finely wrought dream approaches its fulfillment. Moonraker. It's the James Bond that is out of this world. <laughs> now, Moonraker, of course, uh, sends James Bond into space. And I think one of the reasons that uh, this is uh, barely scraped by onto our list is it is immensely entertaining. A lot of James Bond fans hate it for that reason, <laughs> because it's so out there um, and bizarre and, and really and kind of dumb. But, you know, for a sci fi list. You, if you look at it on the merits of like, you got to remember, this was made to cash in on Star Wars. The previous film, Spy Love Me, the best Roger Moore film, says James Bond will return if for your eyes only. Well, Star Wars hits in 77. James Bond did not return for your eyes only. He returned in Moonraker, and that was because Cubby Broccoli wanted to cash in on the success of Star Wars. So how do we do that? We sent James Bond into space. But they also didn't have a lot of time. So unlike John Dykstra and Star Wars and the optical printer, they, Derek Mettings, did these phenomenal visual effects um, and was literally shooting 
plate after plate in camera, like we would do with our Super 8 movies, where he would rewind the film and shoot element after element, like the reveal of Drax's space station and the hundreds of, uh, um, you know, U.S. Uh, uh, soldiers that go to fight Hugo Drax's people on the uh, on, on Drax's space station. But the last half hour, 40 minutes, this movie all takes place in space. Uh, there is a stunning John Barry score. Uh, there is incredible space-based action. There's even a zero-G sequence. There's a zero-G love scene that's the coda of the film. Uh, take me around the world one more time, James. I mean, to me, when you're talking about the bottom <laughs> of the, the list, stuff the that bottom. just edges itself on to the list it, it's it's the more bizarre more esoteric more strict and even though this was a huge blockbuster one of the most successful james bond films of all time it doesn't get a lot of love um but we're here to give it some love today because as a sci-fi movie uh about a secret agent that goes into space and saves the earth in much the way that you know it's interesting if you look at it, hugo drax and viger have a lot in common they both had these globes in 1979 that were circling the earth that were going to devastate the planet. It was exactly the same caper. They both wanted to touch the creator. They, they had the same caper. It's a good thing they didn't see Superman because then they could have wanted to drop, drop uh, Cal, uh, California into the sea. But um, it was literally the same caper V'ger had. Um, but James Bond, using his skill and his acumen, he didn't even have to sacrifice Will Decker and Ilea. He was able to do it without sacrificing anybody. Even Jaws and his little little trollop survive. So anyway, trollop. She's not a trollop. She's not a trollop. No. <laughs> what, what would you say she is? She's just a girl mixed up in this crazy wacky adventure. She's just a girl, She's a girl standing, standing in the shadow in front of, of a guy <laughs> asking her to love him. But I do oh. think this movie, like I mean, I remember seeing it uh, when it opening. I probably saw it opening day, the Friday that it opened. And obviously, in the wake of Star Wars, they were tapping into all of that. But there was something, I mean, for all of its goofy tonal shifts, there's still something very cool about the space elements of this film. The The visual effects are fantastic. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It didn't win, but it was nominated. And um, as a kid watching this movie, when you see the space Marines come out of the cargo section of the space shuttle Sploosh. i mean come on with their I, lasers yeah they're the, the, the chest mounted laser lasers. weapons they have i mean it it is and, and you've got a great space station the production design is marvelous uh it is so much fun and in terms of pulp sci-fi action moonraker delivers i mean it starts with a space station a space shuttle being hijacked i mean you know it's so funny because people at home right now are thinking these are the guys who are telling us how stupid Star Trek three is and that it's not a good movie. <laughs> but now number a hundred on their list is Moonraker. I'm never listening to these guys again. But um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, there's so many good things in Moonraker. And we've talked about this, the scene where Corrine Clary is, is fired by um, Drax and runs away as the Dobermans chaser through the, um, you know, uh, and just the, the fact that they shot in France and it was supposed to be Los Angeles. Did they get a French they get a stock shot of the of the helicopter leaving LAX, and then all of a sudden they're in France, but it's supposed to be LA. It's like, oh, he brought over his French resort, his French building, brick by brick, to and rebuilt it here in Los Angeles. But it's great because they start out with this awesome Derek Meddings miniature shot of the Moonraker 
production facility yeah, yeah, yeah wherever that is and then you go into the it's like a long shot that takes you right into the the his french chateau and it's like la must be like that and lois childs who's terrible a woman <laughs> you know it's like you know it's like it's just oh my god look i don't know that i i that i love or even like moonraker but i'll tell you what i do love about this pick it's one of like one of my great pleasures in life uh like when we're we're talking about these things. It is watching Darren Doctorman. It's just, <laughs> that's the whole show to me, right? That's cinema is, uh, is, is Darren Doctorman's reaction. The, the 101 face facial expressions of disdain. Yeah, yeah. Darren, 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 Darren's not in love with this pick. And he'll be the first <laughs> to admit it, you know, but, uh, but, uh, you know, that's part of what we seek with these lists to find the common ground. Mark, from all sides of the infinite spectrum. diversity and infinite I am Hugo Drax. Well, I just you, want to point out yeah. that you are the Trek expert, and uh, but you know what? If there's a bond spurt among Trek. us, if they, they, oh, you're, you're a bond spurt, absolutely. So uh, you know, anyway, I'm just saying, a great holiday gift would be nobody and I does am it a better. Drip under pressure. I will say this: that seeing this movie for the first time, I walked out of the theater elated. I absolutely it was the second bond movie i saw in a movie 12. theater it's yeah. a perfect movie for it's a perfect movie for a 12 year old it, it uh, was yeah. i mean agreed uh, and corinne clary who previously starred in the story of O, which i didn't know at the time all i knew is that i wanted somebody like that in my life yeah i didn't yeah. like that why wouldn't you movies. but i'll tell you I, I will say this about uh you know moonraker you know i, I know a lot of people who feel the same way this is a, a go-to movie that you can watch again and again and always enjoy it because it doesn't ask much of an audience. And I'd much rather watch this for the hundredth time than license to kill for the second, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's just, you know, and I mean, you, you put, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of these, these millennials, they love that of you to a kill. I'll take Moonraker. Thank you very much. That's true. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go with you there. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that was Moonraker number hundred, number 99, Ashley. Tell us what uh, what number ninety nine our list is. Um, so our ninety ninth pick in our top one hundred and one uh, taught us a, a very important lesson. Something that I think all of us can take with us into our our daily lives. Something that I try to teach my boys. Yes, uh, I, 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 I know what I, it I is. And that lesson is: if it bleeds, you can kill it. Yeah. Number 99 is John McTiernan's. Now, look, if he hadn't made Die Hard, it would be John McTiernan's magnum opus. Uh, John McTiernan's opus, Predator, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. They're up against the ultimate enemy. Holy mother of God. Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it. No blood, no bodies. We hit nothing. But it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper. And now it wants us. It kills for pleasure. Ah! He will skin the lion. It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all going to die. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we 
can kill it. Century Fox presents Arnold Schwarzenegger. Predator. The hunt begins Friday, June 12th at theaters everywhere. Uh, which he was a German cat. No, he's Austrian, I think, or something like uh, that. He's he was like a bodybuilder. He was starting think, a couple of he, movies. Huh. Uh, he was in a couple of things. I I'm not never sure. Heard of him before? He might. No, I never heard of him. Uh, he was in a he was in a few things. He was okay. Um, no, look, Predator. Look, here's what's great about Predator. Um, the movie starts off as a straight-ahead action film about some freelance, like Blackwater type mercenary, former like snake eater, spec ops, tier one operator dudes, like on a mission, like in South America, that turns to shit, and you find out that it's turning to shit. Because there is an alien out there that is hunting them. It's got a great cast. It has got like amazing, just sharp dialogue, clearly rewritten by Shane Black, who is who plays one of the commandos in the yep. movie. Um, it is shocking. Broken funny. plastic razor. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's. It's just, it's it's fun, it's funny, it's exciting. Like the tension is great. McTiernan clearly knows how to stage an action scene. Um, the design of the Predator is awesome. Um, you kind and of- it's like... even more awesome considering that's the second design. Yeah, exactly. It was like there was a failed design that didn't work at all and they came back and they had to redo everything. Yeah. Um, and it's just, look, it's a joy to watch and and the most joyful thing about it is look something that like that that um it's weird i feel like in the last several years we've all gotten used to movies falling apart in the third act yet somehow convincing ourselves that we like them anyway but the great thing about predator is as as awesome as a lot of the sequences in that movie may be right like whether it's the first encounter with the predator when they've got the minigun and they just keep firing even after it's out of bullets because they're so freaked out and that feels so fucking human like or billy like who just carves like blood onto his chest and he's ready to like face down the predator one-on-one -on, -one on that bridge like all of those great moments it's saving the best for last in this almost borman Esque mono a mono duel between Schwarzenegger and uh, and the Predator, right? And it's just and it shows Schwarzenegger. And this is why it's a great science fiction film, right? Because what it shows is Schwarzenegger's character being smart, right? He understands like what makes the Predator tick. He understands the Predator's advantage. It can see heat. Awesome. He coats himself in mud so he becomes invisible to the Predator and masks his thermal signature, like. Everything about that is just, it's low tech versus high tech. It's so smart. It's so cool. The ending is so great. And it gets out when it's done. It ends on this amazing shot of like, of, you know, the military flying in with the helicopters to recover, like, you know, Schwarzenegger and whoever the hell else is left in his team. And he's just standing there, just covered in fallout in ash, right? And you don't even you don't even know how to feel about it. The movie doesn't like give you a joke to end on. It doesn't give you a little hug. There's no denouement. The denouement is somehow you've survived, 
right? And it's just and it's just the music is cool, the action is cool, the acting is cool. Look, man, it's cool. It's Predator. It inspired a lot of crappy sequels, right? But it's cool. It is. It it was. It was. Absolutely. It was cool. And there were some things about some of the sequels that were okay, but nothing like ever achieved like what that first movie achieved. No. I love what you said about it being smart, you know, and and not having the third act uh, implode the way movies do now, that it builds to something, that he takes everything he's learned. And and I just want to, in addition to Alan Silvestri's really great score, Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, what a great ensemble. I mean, we talked about Arnold, but uh, also, I mean, you have Bill Duke, who was in all those movies back then, Mm -hmm. so great, so scary, and such a mild-mannered guy, became a very successful director, but man, he was such a badass. And then, uh, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, obviously Shane Black, but um, Carl Weathers is great mm-hmm. in it. Um, and he's a great foil, you know, and you're a little surprised to, by some of the things that transpire with him. And, um, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's a really um, terrific, uh, uh, you know, cast and score. And, you know, it is a movie that has grown on me over the years. I didn't love it when I first saw it in a theater. Partially it was in like a multiplex where the sound was coming into. And it was back when, you know, I saw it laying his run when the print was shredded. To, you know, and it's just everything about it, like, kind of was didn't work for me now on 4K. And I just rewatched it recently. It's like I like it more than I liked it back in the 80s. So um, and, uh, you know, it's not as much fun as something like Commando, uh, which is a big, you know, goof. Oh, but yeah. um, but um, but it's a really smart sci fi, uh, you know, concept. And Bob Marley's great in it. <laughs> and, but apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger then don't worry about a thing I, apparently during the movie Ar- Arnold Schwarzenegger was going commando the whole time so yeah, <laughs> that gives right. us that great line get to the chopper now get to the chopper. <laughs> there's so many great lines hey Billy yeah, yeah, last yeah. night I was going down on what <laughs> <laughs> yeah imagine watching that with your kid right um, <laughs> you know what <laughs> it's like you don't have thinking. to imagine I don't have to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. So um, great. So Predators number 99, Casey Kasem. Take, us, <laughs> Casey take it away. Casey Kasem is long dead. He's not here. But I'll do number 98 for you. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated. Like these picks are so eclectic so far. So interesting. Back in the before time, there was a great set of movies that were science fiction and family fun and amazing cinema that got sequentially worse as the years (laughs) went by. You're not talking about the Star Wars movies, are you? (laughs) No, this is before that. Okay, Um, before time. In the before time. This is the second sequel to the amazing Planet of the Apes from 1968. This is 1971's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. This is Dr. Zero, her loving husband Cornelius, and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape. From the planet of the apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new. Astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. 
we'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right, we'll go for the banana. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Sarah, are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. So, what we have in Escape from the Planet of the Apes is something that no one would have imagined. Remember, the previous film had the Earth being destroyed. Okay. <laughs> We had Charlton Heston's withered hand on the on the lever for the doomsday device that destroyed the planet Earth. Spoiler alert. Yeah, with have, that great narration, it is now yeah, dead. Yeah. Paul Freeze, right? Was that Paul Freeze? Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, okay, a year later, we want a sequel. You want a what? <laughs> what are you talking about? We destroyed the Earth. What they did was absolutely brilliant. They had um, three apes, Cornelius, Zira, and Milo. Dr. Milo. Dr. Milo, uh, apparently a brilliant chimpanzee scientist who, who, found, <laughs> who found Taylor's spaceship and got it to work again. <laughs> yeah, where's that movie? I, I want to see that movie. I want to write see stuff right? with like, apes. It's like Flight Absolutely. of Phoenix with like you know. exactly the Flight of the Phoenix with apes. <laughs> so that's what that's what makes this absolutely fantastic. It, the The movie opens with uh, the the spaceship crashing into the ocean, and a, a bunch of uh, police and uh, military and all sorts of uh, official people come and. And the, the spacemen walk up and they take their helmets off and they're the apes. And it's just such this great reveal. And it's a great opening for a pretty good movie. I have yes. to say, it's pretty good. It's, it's number 98, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, uh, the idea for it is so fun. It's, uh, it's an ape out of water uh, uh, story. Um, and it has, uh, unfortunately, uh, through various things, uh, Cornelius and Zira are, are, are left. And uh, they become, uh, you know, national uh, uh, celebrities. Uh, and it's, mean, the, the shopping montage in Beverly Hills. It's, it's fascinating. And Jerry and, Goldsmith's score uh, is great. Yeah, I mean, the, the elements to this are so good. Unfortunately, it's shot so badly. Yeah, it looks like a TV but movie from like ABC it looks like, late it night. It looks like they did it in like 20 days. And yeah. it's uh, it's kind of a mess production wise. But but, uh, but it's fun. And and they saved a lot of money not having to do a whole bunch of apes. And I have to tell you, I find and I still think about it right to this day. Like when I saw that movie, maybe I was the right age. The things make an impression. But the ending of that movie. Oh my God. That's that little great. sound that she makes. Like oh, when dude. she puts the baby like into the water, it's just, it's, it's awful. It's horrifying. It's sad. It's like, yeah. it's, um, 
it just it it stays with you. It just stays with you. And I have to say that that Eric Braden, hot off Colossus, the Foreman project, um, which maybe should be on this list. Maybe it's not. Who knows? But he played Dr. Hessline. Yes. For all of you canonistas, right. well, Dr. Hessline's theory of, of time and all that, that we were he he was name checked in the first Planet of the Apes. Right. This was but back here in the is. day where, where Paul Den was actually thinking about canonical uh, the apes. Yeah. The apes had canonical fealty to the previous movies. Yes. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting, I think, is despite the law of diminishing returns with the ape sequels, unlike most films of the era where they just recycled the movie before it, you know, um, Planet of the Apes, every film was completely different. Yeah. Other than the final one, Battle Beyond the Stars, they each one tried to tell a Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle for the Planet Okay. So um, <laughs> the, each one told a very unique story. Beneath the Planet of the Apes was completely different from Planet of the Apes. Yep. Uh, Escape was completely different. And Conquest was absolutely different. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting because it's such a gonzo premise. And you think of the audacity of Escape. They destroyed the world in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Spoiler <laughs> alert. And, yeah. how, and they continued the franchise. It's so brilliant. Um, and, and for that alone, and you're right. And the other thing these movies all had in common was they always had these very dark, fatalistic endings. They all end. This would never happen to me. Every Planet of the Apes movie is so dark and yeah. screwed up. And even Escape from the Planet of the Apes was sort of, the, you know, the one for kids, for kids. You know, it's so, <laughs> you know, the, the apes, they're cute. They come back in time. You know, little Milo. I mean, look at the end of that movie. It, it's, well, I, not, I have it's, to say too that that I think all of us uh, they would have um, theatrical re-releases. Go Ape, yeah, where you could see all the movies. They would always it show only them. happened once. Well, they they would it show only them happened on, once, but they would have them on TV like the Go well, Ape. Sure. Week. Oh well, that's the, different. The yeah, Planet Apes week on the four thirty movie. Exactly. Yeah, and I and I I would say that one of the one of the great things. I mean, as a kid. These movies were both attractive, but at the same time, they're very heady. Mm-hmm. Like they threw out like like, you know, people talk about now. Well, we have to make things that are animated to attract the children. I saw Planet of the Apes the first time when I was five yep. and it blew my mind. And the, the beneath the Planet of the Apes blew my mind. This movie blew my mind. And it was this was the kind of fair I was watching as a six, seven, eight, nine year old. And these movies made me think, and I was excited to watch them. And I, they're very heady if yeah. you really think about it. And yeah. um, even the way they deal with time travel, yeah, because this is a time travel movie. The apes have gone back two thousand years through whatever space warp they traveled through. Yeah. Doctor Hessline's theories of time and relative dimensions in space, or whatever, uh, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, totally. Uh, a great, great pick, and. Um... That will take us uh, to number 97. And 97, which I get to do, too. You do. This is um, embarrassing. And I it's just don't want to miss a thing, so I'm going to let Darren take it away. <laughs> well, it's, it's embarrassing because, look, um, I, I'm actually doing two movies in this because we have sort of a, uh, they're, they're related. Um, first is Armageddon. And the second is Deep Impact. Somebody down 911. What hit us? Small asteroid fragments. This morning. How big were those? Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking. How big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. 
Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast. The rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. Hitting a rock from the outside won't do the job. So we nuke this thing from the inside? How? We drill. We bring in the world's best deep core driller. The United States government has just asked us to save the world. We're talking about space, right? Outer space? This is like deep blue hero stuff. I'm there. I'm with you. Beat me up, Scotty. I want all of you listening to know that everything that can be done to wage this terrible battle is being called into service. May we all see these events through with the courage worthy of this challenge. You don't have to worry about me and my team. We'll get the job done. A Jerry Bruckheimer production, directed by Michael Bay. They're basically the same story set at two different times. Um, <laughs> And it's, it, there was a, uh, back in uh, the late 90s, there was a big uh, flap of uh, earth destruction movies. And uh, specifically, uh, earth destruction by asteroid. Um, and this, the Armageddon was the, was the successful one in terms of, uh, in terms of bucks. Pretty much all the worst ports in the Bible. Deep Impact yeah. did well. It did okay. It didn't do Armageddon numbers. Yeah, that's true. Well, Volcano didn't do Dante's Peaks numbers, but it Agreed. didn't mean it wasn't great. Yes, it no, does. Maybe, maybe it did. <laughs> <laughs> you're, barking, you're barking up the wrong volcano there. Um, <laughs> Armageddon, or as I like to call it, that shitty by the bay, um, is a big... I just got that. Tes- ...testosterone-infused... Um, wank job of a sci-fi movie and it it has a, an amazing sort of uh, all-star and uh and slightly star cast um it uh, it has you know it stars bruce willis ostensibly uh billy bob thornton ben affleck Liv tyler will Patton, steve buscemi uh, the great William Fickner, Owen Wilson, Michael Kirk Duncan, and so many more, uh, you know, sort of uh, A or strong B listers. Um, and it's, uh, it's really sort of this, it's this thing uh, that only exists on its own level. There's really no, no other movies quite like it because it is so big and bombastic and, uh, and uh, music video-y, uh, and it, it, it has one of the worst scripts ever written for a major motion picture. Uh, credits uh, Jonathan Hensley, J.J. Abrams. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of the first uh, sort of uh, big Michael Bay films that made him who he is or who he was. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it basically the, uh, the premise is that we have an emergency. Scientists have discovered that the earth is about to get hit by a big asteroid. Okay, there's, a, there's your premise. Now, how, what do we do about it? Do we 
Do we send, uh, uh, <laughs> do we send scientists up there and train them to do the physicality that is necessary for this? No, we get a bunch of oil drillers and teach them to be astronauts, which seems like the stupidest idea ever. I've got a question. Is this supposed to be the top 101 (laughs) science fiction movies ever made? Yeah, that's correct. And unfortunately it is. Okay. what i'm saying unfortunately it is with all with all these sort of uh, strange ingredients it turns out to be kind of a fulfilling moment to watch you know with all these goofy things happening it's actually quite satisfying i hate to say why do you think that is i think that i think that it, it works on the lizard section of the brain I think that I think that it has enough of these sort of uh, moments that create uh, a feeling of giddiness and and goodness uh, in the audience that builds and builds and builds that no matter what stupid things are happening, they resolve into something that is fulfilling and enjoyable to watch. It's viscerally satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, a the good characters way of are it. fun. Like when these guys, when these oil workers finally like. Yeah, we'll go save the world. They have to. They're, they're given like a lot of money, so they right. have their last night of partying on the world on Earth. Right, and it's uh, they partied exactly the way I would. But they also had their list of demands, right? Yeah. And one of them was like, and no taxes ever. <laughs> I mean, it's and, the movies. This movie is wildly entertaining. It's wildly entertaining. I mean, it, it and it, it's Michael Bay. I don't think there's a shot in the film that lasts longer than half a second. Oh, you know, sure there is, but it's like in like slow motion. 20 cameras, you know, and 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 uh, it, it is fun to watch. I mean, it is it is eye candy through and through from the beginning to the end. It is an entertainment delivery machine. That's its yeah. only goal. That's it is, all it, it does. Is, it, it, yeah, it, it is popcorn come to life. Yeah. And if you can watch it, it that way, you will enjoy it for what it is. Yep. You know, um, and not much more. You know, Deep Impact is a little more thoughtful. Uh, Mimi Leader uh, um, directed uh, directed it. Uh, um, it, it. It's very, uh, more, it's more thoughtful uh, in terms of, you know, and, and addressing how the world. Sure, it's more thoughtful and yet somehow more boring. <laughs> no, it's, it absolutely is. Because it, it, it treats all the, uh, all the characters in Deep Impact as if they are real. And that's not very exciting, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I love Deep Impact. Come on now. Well, you can't. You can't. Oh, but then again, <laughs> then Armageddon is a movie that begins where they destroy Paris. Yeah. Those collaborators. No, I'm just kidding. There goes the observation <laughs> audience in France. <laughs> Don't expect to be invited to a convention in France again, Rob. <laughs> I, no Planet Hollywood for you. No, I tell you. <laughs> I can't believe they never had us back, Rob. We were so entertaining. We were, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Well, you know, it's because we hung out with the not cool kids or we hung out with the cool kids. We, 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 we hung out with the liquid sky people. We're yeah. supposed to be hanging out with the Armageddon people, <laughs> you know, because like they invited us. But then we hung out with like the, the tech people. The AV we people. Nobody ever tells you when you go to when you go to science fiction conventions are the same all over. And if you're not in with the people that put on the convention, you, but you don't know. I don't I rem- know. I remember I told Michael Pillar about it. He wanted to go to France. So the next year he, he had me hooked him up. So he went the next year and he was like, he was like, 
you know, had a great time. So Pillar's like thanking me for recommending him to this convention. Did they ever say thank you? No, no. <laughs> that was fun. I can't believe. So have you ever been to Paris, the most romantic city in the world? Yes, with Rob Burnett for a Star Trek convention. <laughs> oh. yeah. So hey, that, was 90, that was 97. That yeah, was, I think it was 99. No, 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 no. It was a little later. It was like yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, uh, that sure. was, was no, also a great time, though. That was, that was the first time I'd ever been to Paris. Me too. I didn't want to go to sleep. I didn't want to miss anything. It was, I know. It was an amazing city. I've told this story before about how the last night, you know, you said, I'm not even going back to the hotel. I'm just going to walk the city until until the sun comes up. And and, and they were like, so where's the, they said, you're going to be so excited. Where's the final, the final meal, the end of the convention. And like, what great French restaurant will it be? And uh, Le Cirque or, you know, you know, Planet Hollywood. And we're like, what? 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 <laughs> Dude, I, but I was I was standing on top of the Arc de Triomphe, you know, and I was I was calling people on the phone like this is amazing. Yeah. You know, because I was I was the time I was married. I, I called Yelena and I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Yeah. Well, um, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, that was that was a, that was a that was a, a great time. That was a great time. Great. We and we we really wanted to go to the catacombs. Remember, that was Mark the thing. Don't you have number 96? Tell you us know, I do believe <laughs> I do have 96. 96. 96. Well, Paris did not figure prominently in this film, but the rest of the world did. Uh, it was it's the classic uh, George Powell film when curl when worlds collide. When worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. Did you and say when Kroll collided? When, when Kroll collides. collides. I am so in for when Kroll collides. You know, well, Kroll is more of a fantasy film, so it's but not you know, there are aliens in No, Krull. it's sci-fi. No, I guess it is, but, it, you know, okay. Jeez. I'm surprised Ashley didn't go to bad for Kroll. Anyway, I didn't even think about it, but I would have. It's not too late to replace when worlds collide. Now, when worlds collide, uh, you know, for any of you who were young reading Starlog, I, I, I remember that image long before I ever saw when worlds collide. That great image of the rocket ship with the ramp that goes up into the rocket ship, yeah. um, basically, uh, so that we can flee Earth, which is about to be destroyed, to an oncoming planet that's going to 
basically destroy basically Earth Noah's Ark. It's basically Noah's Ark. It's a sci-fi Noah's Ark story. And Bellis, the planet Bellus is going to hit. There's Zyra and Bellus. Bella Oxmix. And um, <laughs> and um, it's, you know, it really, if you look at it, you know, obviously it's a, a 50s uh, science fiction movie. It, you know, at the, at the time, certainly when we were growing up, this is a staple of television. Um, yep. The 50s movies very much were part of the zeitgeist. A lot less so now. So for our younger listeners, this is a very important part of a balanced diet. Um, you should watch some of these 50s movies that we're going to talk about. Because when we're, Worlds Collide, while it's not great, um, it does deal with that whole kind of socioeconomic disparity. I'll put it this way. It was kind of like a sci-fi squid game because people were fighting to win the lottery in order to get on the spaceship. And of course, the really rich people had no problem. But who else was going to get onto this Noah's Ark and be able to escape Earth before it's destroyed? And what would it be like to be left behind knowing that you only had a few days left? Some really interesting things the movie deals with. Obviously not in a very sophisticated way because it was kind of a 50s special effects movie. It was really more of a showcase for the kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, cities being destroyed, uh, floods, all, all the stuff that proceeds. It's kind of like that thing in Armageddon where you destroyed Paris in the beginning for the trailer moment when worlds collide has these kind of vignette kind of destruction, but it's really about the human story of, you know, and will you sacrifice, what kind of sacrifice will you make, you know, um, to go or not to go. So um, it's an actually um, a really interesting premise and it's well executed. And a lot of these 50 sci-fi movies don't date very well. And other than the Bible quote at the beginning of this, I think it dates pretty well. Plus, it has uh, John Hoyt as a yes. great villain. Oh, John so good. Hoyt, so course, good. Who was, who was uh, Dr. Boyce in the, in the cage. Um, he's really good and he makes a great villain. He's kind of like the Elon Musk of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, Mark, I have to say that when I was a kid, the first filmmaker... Uh, the filmmaker's name I was aware of was George Powell, who mm -hmm. produced this movie. And he had produced Destination Moon the year previous to this, 1950. This came out in 1951. Then he did War of the Worlds. And then he did Conquest of Space. And yep. they were literary adaptations. And when I was a kid, those movies, those four films, Destination Moon, uh, When Worlds Collide, War of the Worlds, and Conquest of Space, they were my absolute favorite movies as a little kid that and, and the first Planet of the Apes but they played them on on our local sci-fi theater over and over and over again I probably they were also the first movies I probably saw 10 times each because they would play them all the time and as a kid nothing was cooler than the space arc yeah. at the yeah. end of this movie yeah absolutely the, the ultimate 50s sci-fi chrome spaceship that was on that track you know i i dreamt of i couldn't get a model of it until 50 years later practically but it, it was an amazing the the it had set pieces they, they destroyed you know just like armageddon armageddon took a page from this movie mm -hmm. let's let's blow some shit up and that's what they would do and you'd see these horrible calamities befall dams burst they combined stock footage with miniature shots it was amazing yeah and yeah. when you were like five it was the greatest movie ever made. Yeah, I know. It's funny because I actually had the 10 minute Super 8 version long before I ever saw the finished version. Plus, it was I, silent. So I could make up any movie I wanted in my head. Wow. You know, um, it's pretty like, cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And and uh, 
it, it, you know, th- these movies are very educational. A lot of people watch them and say, you know, younger people say, oh, this is just so stupid and so cheesy. But uh, there's ideas here. And this was the equivalent of a big, you know, big budget blockbuster today. Absolutely. And and when you really look at it and you drill down, you realize there's so much more going on, you know, even if it's not perfectly executed, than there are in today's, most of today's A-list movies. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Okay, that takes us to number 95. And Ashley Miller has another top 101 treat for us. I'll say so, top 101. Oh, damn yeah. right. Uh, so number 95 represents the first foray and perhaps the last foray into science fiction of a, uh, a director who is, uh, who is more closely associated with the horror genre, uh, very particularly, I think, and most successfully in ways that we can, we can fully ascribe to him, uh, the slasher genre. Um, the director of 1974's brilliant, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper, um, who didn't quite follow that up directly, but ultimately followed that up um, with a, uh, a little movie called Life Force. From the director of Poltergeist and the writer of Alien comes a terrifying new film. I'm getting a very small radar cross-section. 150 miles long. EGRs confirmed. Tell them we have an artificial object out here. Haley's Comet. There's something wrong. Something ancient. Something evil. Jesus. Houston, we have a problem. Something's happening to me. Something hungry. That's brought to Earth. She's destroyed worlds. That girl was no girl. She was totally alien to this planet and our life form. Totally dangerous. I just found a body in Hyde Park. Life Force. Close your eyes. Visited you how? In my mind. It's already spreading. You didn't stop it, it's too late. Come, be with me. Life Force. The Terror has just begun. So, uh, life... Hubba, hubba. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> life force. Uh, let's, hear it, let's hear it for Matilda May's costumer. Thank you. Right? It's like, look, there's a lot of things about life force. You're like, on paper, I'm down, right? It's like, there's a 150 mile long spaceship. There are space vampires. They come to Earth. Patrick Stewart is found in the tale of Haley's Comet. Right? <laughs> His first on screen kiss with Damn, a dude. With a dude. Captain Picard fights space vampires. Not very successfully either. <laughs> Not successfully yeah, in any way, 
but he does. But the selling point of this movie, other than space vampires, 150 mile long spaceship is Matilda May, who, as Mark indicated, her costume is That was amazing. me, actually. Was I it you? I look a lot like Mark. Yeah, it's not you like do. I called it the topless one-on-one of all time. Yeah, that's right. No, no, no. Look, um, there's just... It, she's when not force, only topless. She's allless. She's allless. She is completely <laughs> lacking in everything except Matilda May. Uh, and let's no. face it, she is delicious. She is she so is. beautiful. She's perfect in she's every way. Uh, Look, I mean, it's, it's perfectly it's deadly. It's like Toby Hooper is attempting to make kind of a, a straight up Dracula film, mm-hmm. right? Like, but making it contemporary, making it science fiction. Um, and somewhere along the way, it's like something about it, like just. It, it just it doesn't quite click. No, you right? know what? Like, you know you know what doesn't click? Two words: Steve Railsback. Railsback. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Steve Railsback fails to click, in spite of Matilda May's best efforts. In spite she of is an alien, and he is less human than anyone in the film. Now, now, as someone who's actually directed Steve Railsback, <laughs> let me just back right up there, son. Steve Uh-oh. Railsback, star of the stuntman, star of Helter Skelter. Uh-huh. Steve Railsback can do no wrong. When you see him say, she's destroyed worlds. He's awesome. Don't you dare <laughs> malign Steve Railsback. I don't so need malign. to. We don't need to. You just have to watch Life Force. But look, the thing with Life Force is, look, when it came out, it was not uh, well-received, okay? That's because like, it, it did- was cut. The international well, yes. version came out later. It did. Genius. The theatrical version was like was a disaster. The international version was, I think, certainly much more entertaining. I don't know that it ever became a great film, but good lord, it is so it's watchable. It's um, got some. It's got some really iconic moments, and not just Matilda May, but it's yeah. It's, it's, it's also it's got really, a great score. It has a terrific yeah, Henry Mancini and Michael yeah. Kamen. And I would like yeah. to say that uh, it also has a great Blu-ray which I might have had a little something to do with. Well, I deeply love this movie in spite of its flaws. And it has a great it has a great cast of British actors. A really great cast. And John Dykstra did the effects. We want all the British actors that we can get. I believe there's life after death. You mean there's death? (laughs) There's life after death? (laughs) Yes. And that girl, she's no girl. (laughs) And what's so so funny is it starts out as like a sci-fi thriller. You know, you meet this, the space shuttle with these solar panels. Mystery. Right. Space shuttle doing things a space shuttle should simply not be doing at all. And by the end of the movie, you've got the zombified London yeah, you know the old Bailey is being blown up, and things are. I mean, it's bananas. It's bananas. By the way, Ashley, I do want to point out that Toby Hooper did direct the remake of Invaders from Mars. True, right? Very true. I, I, I want to point out, but that's it, way more like it's okay. I, I want to point out that this movie may have the greatest line of dialogue of any movie on our entire list, which is, "A naked girl will not get out of this complex." <laughs> words to live by indeed it's um, better it, than get to the chopper now it seems to me that he was credited with uh, poltergeist before this uh well he was but that's a totally different different and interesting story right i mean look, is, we, could t- 
this is the movie that proved that he didn't direct Poltergeist. Or look, I mean, look, Toby Hooper was a troubled dude. Um, That's and, fine. Many, and many the, people the, are troubled. Yes, exactly. The the fact that he was troubled, I think, was was a lot of the reason why many of the stories about uh, how Poltergeist went down um, kind of go around. And like whether they're true or not, I think depends on like who you talk to and the circumstances under which you talk to them. Uh, for example, like not in a podcast, but uh, you know, I will I will tell you that I do think that Toby Hooper, um, you know, for for all of his demons, um, was ultimately an interesting dude. Um, oh, I have no doubt of that. Right, with like just just a sense of what makes something cool, and Life Force for all of its flaws certainly demonstrates that whoever was sitting back there calling the shots, like had a sense of things that like were cool. They weren't always successful, but a lot of them were super cool and super interesting. And I think that's why totally Life Force has earned its way onto this list. <laughs> I also think like the, the science fiction-y elements of it, like, like you said, Ashley, there's a lot of wonder like when you go into Halley's Comet and the, the the you 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 see, I mean it's not as good as finding the alien derelict craft in 1979's Alien, but there is something pretty cool when the astronauts in their EVA suits go into the chambers and find the desiccated space bats or whatever. It's pretty cool. I mean they have these giant sets and dudes suspended from the ceiling, and there there's a lot of the same way that I would love. Uh, when worlds collide as a kid, I watched Life Force in 1985, and I'm like, oh, "That's pretty cool." It's like a Nigel Neal movie. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's you like know, a Quatermass movie. And 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 the thing the thing is, you know, look, I I I gotta tell you, I, I read a lot. You know, me and a lot of my friends, and we you know we moderate. We've all moderated panels, and I always read people always say, "We are." Oh, I was friends. honored. <laughs> I was honored to moderate. I was honored, and I always laugh because you know I'm not honored when I do these things. I'm. I'm pleased. I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to do it. I enjoy it. And and, and I just tweeted that today. Oh, did you really? <laughs> because it's like I'm not honored. It's not an honor to be asked to Q and A something. But uh, I, know, it is. it's not really an honor. But people say it. So, but I got to tell you, I did a Q and A with Toby Hooper for the International Cut of Life Force at the American Cinema Tech. You were honored. That was an honor. That was an <laughs> honor. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, he sat there and made, you know, excuses for, you know, this was supposed to be a comedy. It was intentional, you know, whatever problems, you know, it was all canon films who, who ruined it with the recut and stuff. And, and, you know, whatever you believe what you want, but uh, that was a, I just, I just love that. I'd love to, I got, I had all these questions about this crazy movie and I got to sit there for an hour and ask Toby Hooper yep. everything I wanted to know about that well, dopey movie. The, the original uh, uh, title for the movie was uh, Quatermass and the Tits. So, <laughs> well, it was based on the book The Space Vampires right. by Colin Wilson. Wilson. And I remember when Canon first um, was selling it at the film markets and, you know, raising the money to do it. Um, they had a one sheet, which was the international one sheet, which these nude, nude women strapped to a rocket. And it was called The Space Vampires. And it was in variety. So when I yeah. first saw that, I'm like, this is going to be the I'm going to see this. Ever. I, <laughs> I, I had that poster in my college dorm room wow. and people are like, even back then, they're like, that's really offensive. Yeah, yeah. Imagine what they would say Whatever. now. Only the space vampires. Yeah. yeah, I was like, come on. They would get you kicked out you of know, college. Women now. strapped to rockets in the vacuum of space. What's wrong with that? And and uh, right. but that was some 
crazy piece of key art. And yeah, it was. Um, and it sold uh, the movie. And I have yeah, to say, right? they used that crazy. They they did various iterations of that. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese version of that was really cool. Mm. Um, the colors were really cool. And it, it almost looked like it was underwater. And then there was the European version that was a little bit more not as good. But they the, the image of the of a nude woman strapped to a rocket, which was odd. The only country that didn't get that key art was America. Was the United States, and they had the worst piece of key art. It was just like, wasn't it like space? It was like it was space. like an eyeball coming down, yeah, yeah, the trailer yeah, yeah. blinking. It's yeah. just not good. Life yeah, force. Yeah. But everyone in that, the British character actors, the whole thing, and like you said, it it, it goes from being a vampire movie to a zombie movie. Like and yeah. it's so but it's so bizarre when it makes that shift because you know it goes from being something fairly small to like this big sprawling movie that like makes no sense. I mean, not that it ever did. It's just I mean that whole scene where the guard goes in and she comes back to life on the table and sucks out his life force. I mean, it's 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 bizarre. It's bizarre. Again, a, a movie if you haven't seen it, it's like every you, Saturday night for Rob. And you like yeah. gu- guilty pleasures. Because it truly is, it is the definition of guilty pleasure, life force, isn't it? But you know, there was a, there was something we'll, we'll never see those movies ever again. There, there was a, there was a verve. There was some kind of a crazy uh, energy in that film that we, we're not going to ever get. Oh, I would definitely say. Certainly, my my joie was devived when I watched that movie. Let me tell you. Uh, I mean, Matilda May was a ballet dancer that he found in. I think France. Yep. And um, they had a really difficult time finding somebody to do that movie for obvious reasons. And she was great. She was great. She was. She was. She was. She was great. So anyway, so that's Life Force. So Which brings us to '94 and Rob Burnett. Uh, this, I think, this is a very special movie that no one's ever heard of, and I'm going to say it. It is a Japanese film uh, from 2009 called The Clone Returns Home. おそ。大丈夫。私は共鳴の謎を解くことができたんだ。何があったんかしらが、ここへ来てくれた。戻った方がいいぞ。And it is very much sort of a riff on Tarkovsky's Solaris. It was based on the Polish novelist Stanislaw Lem's book. I mean, it's not any kind of a, there's no direct correlation, but it has that feel. And it's basically about an astronaut who dies in the line of duty. And he is resurrected as a clone. And he, what happens is what, 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 is not expected is that this clone has memories of his youth, memories of his childhood, memories of his dead um, brother, his twin brother. 
Not that. And, and yeah, and 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 ends up going on an odyssey to go back home to where he grew up. And it is lyrical and it is sad and it is romantic and it is tragic. And there, you know, you see a lot of Solaris in it, but it's, it's, you know, it's about remembrance and and memory and, and what are the memories that stick with you? Like if you were resurrected, what would, what would be the memories that were at the forefront of your cloned brain and it is sad and it's moving. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's I think it's a lovely I think it's a lovely film that not a lot of people have seen. And I think one of the things on this list, you know, we we don't have as much foreign cinema as I think we should, because there's a lot of great science fiction films that a lot of people just have never seen. This is one of them. As a matter of fact, people are probably going, what, what the clone, what the clone returns home. And that was uh, episode five, right? <laughs> yeah right yes. not, on my, not on this list mister but um <laughs> i think it's a wonderful movie and it's it's melancholy i mean one of the films that i would have put on this list that i don't think is on this list is never let me go and uh that is also a film about clones and the whole idea of cloning and and what the what does that mean it's i think one of the, one of, novel. yes and one of the one of the things i've always thought about cloning uh no one ever gets it right no one quite understands what cloning is. Certainly Star Trek Nemesis doesn't. If you're cloned, you don't have a connection to the person you've been cloned from. You know, you can't like like there's no reason Tom Hardy would feel anything Patrick Stewart feels because it doesn't matter. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. <laughs> so I think or the sad say, man. Nemesis but in this movie, it's all on about this list. <laughs> so uh, that's the only you, mention of Nemesis you'll hear. Yeah. And if you seek out The Clone Returns Home, it's a wonderful film, and uh, it is very different than you might expect. And I would, I would actually suggest that if you want to have an afternoon of it, watch, watch it uh, with Mark Romanek's film, Never Let Me Go, which is, I think, one of the most devastating science fiction movies ever made. But they both, they both park their shuttlecrafts in the same shuttle bay. So, <laughs> well, this is a good point to remind the audience too. The other thing that we will not be found on this list um, are TV movies. And of course, right. you know, we extolled the virtues of uh, Late to Heaven. Yep. One of my favorite science fiction films of all time, by the way. Thank yeah. you very much. And, and, yeah. and which is, you know, would probably be on this list. if Absolutely. If, we, if it wasn't a TV, if it wasn't a TV movie. And uh, I recently saw Bruce Davison and went up to him and just told him, you know, I'm such a huge fan of that movie, as are much of my contemporaries. And he was very appreciative. Um, and uh, and then. Um, you know, so things like the Martian Chronicles uh, miniseries right. with Rock Hudson. Uh, I don't know if that would have made it, but it's the none of these things are eligible uh, because they are uh, TV movies. Back in the time when TV movies weren't better than movies. Um, okay, so that brings us to number ninety-two, and once again, uh, I'm sorry, it brings us oh, 93. 93. I, ninety-three. I, uh, I, uh, I, I, it's I, you. It's another. It's another battle, but unlike the battle for the planet of the apes. Or um, the final battle with the alien lizard monsters from B, which we just established can't be part of this countdown. This was a battle beyond, beyond the stars, beyond way, the way beyond, way beyond. Sador it of was, the Malmori. Now, here's the thing. This That's is my not, line. Here's it, this is it is your line. I'm stealing. Here's it. the thing. <laughs> this is not a particularly good movie. 
You're out of your mind. But it has the pedigree of being written by the great John Sayles. Mm-hmm. It is um, basically the Seventh Samurai slash Magnificent Seven in space. Right. So that high concept alone makes it great. And you have George Pappard and Sybil Danning and Robert Vaughn and John Saxon is the villain, Sador. Yeah. And of course, Richard Thomas, Richard as, Thomas. Uh, who is, is about as exciting as Mark Hamill was uh, in uh, Corvette Summer. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it is um, it, it, at the time, uh, Roger Corman was doing a bunch of small drive in, you know, uh, pictures. Uh, he he was renowned as being tight with the with the dollar. And one of the things he realized after Star Wars was, you know, all these exploitation films. And even after the studio started doing things like Easy Riders is that the things that he was pioneering that he was doing. Now the studios were starting to make money doing stuff like Jaws and Star Wars. And how would he compete? So he realized he had to spend more money. So he spent a whopping like one point five million dollars on uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. He risked his whole company to do it. Ruthless invaders, a defenseless planet. Battle Beyond the Stars. A lone youth escapes on a last-ditch mission that begins at the edge of the universe. story of a boy who finds more than he expected. <laughs> and all he can handle. Does your species have kissing? Oh, yes. We have that. Try one. That's a hot dog. It comes from Earth. Do you like it? There's no dog in this. Mm-mm. Soybean meal? Niacin, dextrose, and sodium nitrate flavoring. That's what we call meat back home. (laughs) A battle beyond time, beyond space. I said fire! That ends in a desperate gamble. They'll be able to board us. It won't make any difference. Get that hatch open! Beyond the stars. And what does Rob have there? And Rob has an X-Men of the Valkyrie. I have the only Battle Beyond wow. the Stars action figure that exists. Where do you get that? Where Shout do you get fa- those wonderful toys? Shout Factory made this for their steelbook release. Wow. Nice. Wow. wow. That's awesome. And underneath is Nell. One of my favorite starships of all time. I happen to love this movie. And look, I understand like the the limitations of the film, kind of it from kind of where it comes from, like from the the Roger Gorman of it all. Um, But it is in its own way brilliant. And if you really think about like the the people who were involved in this movie at the time, right? Who were part of. James Cameron, Catherine Bigelow, Joe Dante, 
freak Gail Ann Hurd was a part of this. The it, James brothers. Horner wrote the score. It was the first time that he wrote the score that became the score for Aliens the first and time Star he Trek off Something In this case, Jerry Goldsmith's Star Trek, the motion picture score. Exactly. It's like, it's just, it's turtles all the way down, Dr. Hawking. <laughs> I, I love this movie. I mean, look, let's think about Nell for a second. Here's what's brilliant about Nell. Dude, as a Morgan Starship Woodward design. is in this movie. And right. Jeff 100%. Corey, you hit the trifecta. But but let's stay focused on what on what matters, boys. Calm yourself, doctor. Just tell us. You must learn to look come at your Nell straight on. You're doing. Boobs. But if you turn, if you rotate now, like so that you're looking at her from the top, fallopian tubes. The it's entire just, reproductive system of a it's woman. Insane. And like, and what's what is most insane about that ship and about the fact that Richard Thomas, of all people, right? The most like vanilla human being who ever walked the earth, right? John Boy Walton is the is commanding this thing, and Nell is just a great character. Like you love her, you love this AI. Like she's basically the hero of this thing, um, and it's like there's just so much of Battle Beyond the Stars that like I don't think like Guardians. You know, it's funny because we talked on another podcast about Guardians of the Galaxy in the context of Star Trek. But quite frankly, like Guardians of the Galaxy owes an enormous debt to Battle Beyond the Stars. Mm. Like nearly every component of it owes an enormous debt to Battle Beyond the Stars. So I I don't know. I don't know if you can well, tell. And I, I like this movie. I love the fact that Robert Vaughn plays exactly the same character he was in the Avengers in Seven. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the guy I mean, he's so good. The, the actors in this movie. There's a lot of great act- Sam Jaffe as Dr. Hevestus mm-hmm. is in here. Um, there's a lot of Earl Bowen mm-hmm. is in here, plays the leader of Nestor. We are Nestor, which was I great. Mean, the whole we are, the whole Nestor conceit is so much more clever than anything I've seen in Star Trek in the last 15 years. No, it's 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 th- this movie has a lot to love in it. Yeah, it really absolutely. does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it goes to show you that that what you can do with a small budget. I mean, I think this movie costs like four million dollars or something. No, it was less than that. Well, yeah, it's just a uh, it, it, even the spaceship designs were so mm-hmm. much fun in this movie. Well, well, right. I, it was cruisers, the one that like swallowed everything up. It was it was awesome. And the fact that, you know, James Cameron made those sets out of, you know, egg McMuffin boxes or, or you know, from McDonald's yeah. and then painted them. I, I, you know, and it cost them next to nothing other than they were able to do catering and art uh, set deck at the same time. Um, and, and the fact is, that's probably how it starts was the gift they kept, kept giving because, you know, Corman uh, recycled uh, the sets again for Galaxy of Terror yeah. and, and for Forbidden World. And he used the effects again. The, he, space Raiders. And right. Space like, Raiders. And so, like, designs. Like everything, frankly, like even Cameron, like reached back again and again to Battle Beyond the Stars. Like, and James Horner did too. Well, 100% <laughs> he did. But if you look at like the design of Nell and then you look at the design of the Hunter Killer drones uh, yeah. in the Terminator, they're the they're, same thing. They're, right? they're the same related. thing. Yep. 100%. Like the dropship uh, in Aliens. Like, it's like, there's just something like the DNA of that movie has kind of spread into so many things well, in pop culture. Well, something that uh, something that you may find interesting was that that shape, that sort of Y yoke that uh, that comes down, that is in the Hunter Killers and in Nell, yeah. um, is 
a toy from the major Matt Mason uh, collection that Jim Cameron loved as a kid. So Amazing. he used it over and over again. Amazing. That is awesome. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. Battle Beyond the Stars was a movie that I was obsessed with because of Starlog. It sounded so amazing. Mm -hmm. And I went away to summer camp when it played in New York. And because they only made a few prints and would bring them from city to city, by the time I got out of sleepaway camp, it was no longer playing. I never saw Battle Beyond the Stars until many, many years later because wow. I was never able to see it in its original release um, because it, it, it wasn't in New York anywhere where I could see it. And I was I was totally obsessed with that movie because it was, again, that that age of the fan magazines where you read about it and say, this sounds like the greatest thing ever. The Magnificent Seven in space. Holy moly. So anyway, that's Battle Beyond the Stars. And that's our pick for number 93, which brings us to Robert Burnett and our pick for number 92. Actually, it brings us to Ashley. OK, Ashley, will you please take number 92? Yes. Um, okay, so at number 92, look, um, <laughs> was like, was how, like, once upon a time, right, the, the source of adaptation for genre film wasn't comic books, right? It wasn't superheroes. Um, regular it was, books. It was regular books, right? Like, um, the, the, the great, like, the great works of fiction that, like, to some in society would have seemed like pulp, right? Would have seemed disposable. Um, but but those of us who are in the know understand that they were written by these incredible artists, these incredible authors, um, these incredible stories. For example, the great Richard Matheson, um, who wrote a, uh, a novel in 1954 that's been adapted more than once uh, called I Am Legend. And the specific... Three times, actually. Yes. The specific yeah. adaptation... Uh, that has found its way onto our list is 1971's The Omega Man. There is no phone ringing, damn it! The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. What day is it anyway? Monday? The hell it is. It's Sunday. Sunday I always dress for dinner. Discovered check. How does that grab you, Caesar? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. Last man on Earth is hunting. Because the last man on Earth is not alone. himself. And I see you got a mad scientist. You know me? And about your work. My work? Incremental effects, countermeasures to toxic agents in liquid systems delivery, microbiological letters, January 1975, remember? You know what it means? I was a med school senior when they scratched the world. 
family. God, I forgot to keep the fuel up in the generator. They'll be into the garage. We're going to go with Woodstock, but we went with the Omega Man instead. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's stars Charlton Heston, uh, who is basically, look, the, the genius of I Am Legend and the Omega Man is that it is essentially an inversion of the Dracula myth, right? It's right. set in a world where there is one human being left, and this human being walks by day in a world by creatures that live by night. And they fear him because he hunts them. He kills them, right? Because he is the last person on earth who is attempting to eradicate the plague of vampires that has essentially destroyed the world. And it is, look, it's it's insane. It's brilliant. It's look, it's 1970s like science fiction. So in a way, like there is like there's there's something gothic yet contemporary about it that's very particular to the time um mm -hmm. that has never really been recreated like in any other period i can't think of like like anything since that has felt i mean well there's a few things since like in the 70s that have felt a little like the omega man but like but once you get past like some point in like in the 70s like you're, you're not doing that kind of movie anymore right like um it's it is like elevated hammer horror. It's um it's it's look. <laughs> I don't even know like Here's where to begin. Here's the thing. <laughs> what makes the Omega Man brilliant is that it fully respects the source material. And unlike other adaptations of I Am Legend, it it doesn't attempt to give the story an ending that it hasn't earned. Um, it, it doesn't attempt to make the story about anything other than what it is. Uh, and Charlton Heston is just, he's fantastic in he this movie. He was a movie. movie star. He was a total yeah. movie star, right? And there's a reason why he was a movie star. It's like his, he, his presence, his charisma, you had to believe that this guy would scare the crap out of these monsters. He would and be he the does. last human being on earth. Damn right, because he is so effing cantankerous. And loves his guns so much. And loves his guns. That like that nothing is going to take him down. Um, it's just, it's a great piece of science fiction. It's a great adaptation of a great novel. Uh, again, by Richard Matheson, who, uh, who wrote like several uh, super cool and scary episodes of uh, of Star Trek, and and it has all these all these and the uh, Twilight Zone and the Twilight Zone. It has all these aspects like, uh, um, you know, being uh, uh, distrustful of the mob, and uh, and individual, uh, you know, individual uh, should rule over the you know over the world, you know, and it's um, it's really sort of strong. Uh, ideas masquerading as a, a thriller horror movie mm -hmm. yeah and you know also 
you forget in the pre-CGI era, what's so great, um, this is a movie where he goes to an empty Los Angeles and they shot it on the weekends and yeah. they had a close. On Sundays. Yeah, these great aerial shots of him driving around in a convertible through a completely empty Los yep. Angeles. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's great because they really did it. You yeah. Know? And um, uh, it, it just looks so cool. And he's so great. And, and what's so funny is it's such a product. Of, it, when you look at these movies, you could tell a 70s movie right away, right? Yeah. What a, a 70s or 60s or a 90s. If you looked at these movies, didn't know any movie, but just looked at them, listen to them on audio. You could yeah. say what decade. Like, clearly, this is a 70s movie because it's exactly about the obsessions of, of, of the 70s, you know, and, and just the way, like, if you watch When Worlds Collide, you could tell it's a 50s movie, right. you know, um, it, it's, it's so interesting that way. Speaking of the audio, Ron Grenier, who wrote mm -hmm. the theme song for The Prisoner, and I actually think maybe Doctor Who wrote the score for this movie. Which is great. great. And this film has a great score. It's great. Yep. And here's what I think is, is again, like there's just so many interesting things you can unpack about this film, right? So the, the closest analog that I can imagine to this movie is weirdly um, the first half of 28 Days Later, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, but the, the, the key difference is that in 28 Days Later, he's a victim. Right. Yeah. It's like, and by the way, there's like some interesting analogs in terms of how they shot it. Right. Because like to get all those shots of uh, of a post-apocalyptic London, they basically got up really early in the morning yep. when there was nobody around and they shot it for real. But in this movie, Charlton Heston is not a victim. Right. He is nobody. The funny thing that this movie sets up is that without the zombies, this would be a pretty cool life. Yeah. Totally. Actually. Other than, yeah. <laughs> and if you... the whole, I, I just going to say the whole setup of it is he's got a pretty cool setup going on here. You know, there's, if you're, if you're the last person on earth and there's no one around to bother you, you can basically, you know, go around the stores, pick a car you like, uh, collect you know, all the action figures, go to the movies. Yeah. Go to the movies and, and watch uh, Woodstock. And, and uh, it's just, it, it's, it's pretty fun living this life. There's just one catch. Yeah. Just one little <laughs> trick to the yeah, whole and, thing. And if you're a, a big fan of Anthony Zerby and Star Trek Insurrection, you're going to love him in, uh, in, in I Am Legend. Yeah. In a role he, that was not in the Omega Man. A dual role. Yeah. He's, he's really, yeah, he's actually really spooky and weird in the Omega yeah. Man. He's creepy. Yeah. You know. Um, that's only when he's the newsman. <laughs> so that's number 92 um uh, oh uh, wait now rob i just now. want to make sure now we're yes, up to 91, rob, 91. rob burnett you'll never guess what 91 is well as <laughs> i was saying comic book adaptations <laughs> comic book adaptations we're talking about 1968's barbarella Quite Contrella, produced by Dino De Laurentiis himself. It is based on the Barbarella comic books, the French comic books by uh, uh, Jean-Claude Forrest. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis produced it, directed by Roger Vadim, and it stars Jane Fonda and John Philip Law, who also starred in Danger Diabolic, 
which was also another Dino De Laurentiis produced comic book adaptation of a European comic. Uh, Barbarella is it is both a science fiction film and a sex fueled phantasmagoria set in outer space. And basically, the story has Jane Fonda playing the title character. She is a space traveler and a representative of. I would the actually United... say that she's the titular character. She is the titular oh, character, God. indeed, of the United Earth government, and she is sent to find scientist Doctor Duran Duran. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and if, that's right. If you wonder, yes, yes that is was. where the band took their name from, and he apparently is created a weapon that can destroy humanity now this film is i i I mean it has the orgasmatron in it 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 opens with with the beautiful uh, jane fonda who at the time had been involved in numerous scandalous uh pictures of a, a a photo shoot she'd done with her husband had been leaked to playboy uh there she she was quite the dish back then and she was young and beautiful, and she had yet to to popularize aerobics for everyone that she did in the eighties. Uh, Jane Fonda's aerobics tapes were like the biggest selling home entertainment uh, tapes ever. So this film is—I mean, this film—it it has incredible landscapes, incredible production design. Its special effects are not that special, but it has a. Nothing else looks like this movie. Meet the most beautiful creature of the future. Her name is Barbarella, and she makes science fiction something else. Jane Fonda is... Barbarella. Barbarella is a five-star, double-rated astro-navigatrix Earth girl whose specialty is... Love. Shall I tell you what I would like? I think I know. Her top secret mission is a real wing-dinger. Many dramatic situations begin with screaming. Could you hand me a garment? See Barbarella do her thing with the nice angel. With the warm, friendly ice man with a cold, evil black queen. Hello, pretty, pretty. With a charming hand-to-hand Romeo. See Barbarella do her thing in the wild, excessive machine. Sort of nice, isn't it? In the biting birdcage, in the chamber of dreams, in the labyrinth of love, 
in the deadly dollhouse, in the palace of pleasure. You find adventure beyond your imagination when you get lost in space with Barbarella. I think, it, it. I think it would have gotten the award for most production design. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is a uh, a visual feast. It is a visual feast, and a and it does not shy away from the sexuality of the main character. It is a a a a pop art sci fi extravaganza like you've never seen. Is it? Def- it-, it defined the sixties the way we wish it had been. Yes, yeah. indeed. I mean, Jean Pierre Dorlac, who did the um, worked on the costumes for that, went on and did Galactica and Buck Rogers too. Right. And I have to say that, as our friend Alan Spencer would tell us, Terry Southern was one of the right. screenwriters that worked on this film, one of the great uh, satirists of the right. '60s, co-writer uh, of uh, Doctor Strangelove. Yes, indeed. So the pedigree of this movie came out from Paramount our favorite Star Trek studio. Uh, (laughs) I have to tell you, whenever I've watched this film, I can't believe it exists. (laughs) And um, I dearly love it. And it is crazy. But, you know, it sort of defines pulp science fiction the way no other film has. There's no other movie, uh, aside from one that I'll be talking about a little later, that is like this film and um uh it, it's certainly not woke that's for sure I, I i will say rob that i strongly associate this movie with you because the first time i saw it um was at your place and i was drunk out of my mind and i would swear that the opening title sequence lasted for like three hours oh it does it does, it does. But I don't recall minding. Uh, yeah, well, no. because you know what? Because Rob, Rob and his ex-wife, Elena, used to have these salons at their house. Yes, and they would have Barbarella on every weekend and play this is how long ago it was air or daft punk and, and have uh, you know the sound muted on Barbarella. I love just that you even know the discs we play on, on a loop. And you know, half of them were high on ecstasy, and the other half were just watching Barbarella. And I don't know who was more yeah. fucked up. So um, <laughs> it was it was crazy. And I'm twenty years ago, nostalgic man. for those days. Me too. Uh, and no, they were good. I mean, how, I, it, I, I remember Barbara. Now, I just want to say, while I'm paying Rob this compliment, I have to say the other takeaway. I'll never work for a corporation again. Thank what, you, Mark. What, <laughs> It was 20 years ago. The other thing I have to say was you never want to sit at the same table with Rob and John Philip Law because <laughs> Rob will sit there and tell John Philip Law how freaking awesome he is. And, and this is where he got the nickname Kiss Ass Rob. It's true. And, and, <laughs> and oh my God, just when you think Rob is finished telling him how amazing he is, he then starts to tell. I mean, this guy is probably the first time he's on a date with this woman, this John Philpola. I didn't know that. He starts to tell the, the, the girlfriend, the date for the evening, for the award show, how amazing. Rob sounded like he had a bigger crush on John Philpola than the woman who was with him. It was unbelievable. And it was just like, oh, my God, please stop. <laughs> and I, that was you what John Philpola said. Jamie Farr is walking when up you're, with When like you've played Pygar and Barbarella and your Diabolic, Endangered Diabolic, 
and you're rolling around with Eva at the beginning of that movie with money. All, I mean, I couldn't. And by the way, John, uh, John Philip Lawmark is a very, very handsome man. You were he honored. Was. You were honored to be at the same table. I was honored. And I, I actually you know, honored, not just really pleased. And by the way, he actually he shook my hand. He said, hey, thanks for the assist, the assist, because, <laughs> you know, he was going to get lucky that night. Because of me, you were John <laughs> yeah, Philip wingman. I was his wingman, un, unbeknownst to me. I was, but you, know, you know, Mark. I have to say that we we have been afforded over the last thirty years of living in LA and working in the industry and all that. We have been afforded great many opportunities to meet a lot of the people that were involved with the making of these movies. Yes, that's so true. to have to have an opportunity to gush over them for better or for worse. It's not like I insulted Kevin Williamson on stage. (laughs) But in in retrospect, you look uh, wise for that (laughs) slip of the tongue. But uh, that's a story for another podcast. Um, So, okay, that was Barbarella. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We're 11 in now. I know we're almost there. We're almost there to end of part one. We're halfway through episode one. But we ain't done yet, Flyboy, because I'm about to bring you number 90, number 90. And and guess what? All you WandaVision fans out there, have I got the movie for you? This was WandaVision before there was a WandaVision. It's Michael Lachlan's Strange Invaders. Centerville, Illinois is a nice place to live in. Hey, Bob. But you wouldn't want to visit there. And you definitely don't want to bring the family. Because the people of Centerville have a little secret. They really would rather not share. This is odd. No one has lived in that town since 1958. I know what I saw. Intruded on a very delicate situation. I led them right to you. Twenty-five years ago, they came from another galaxy and joined the human race. Now they're ready to leave, and some of us may be going with them. Strange invaders. Is that a pin drop I hear out there in the, in, in there in Listerland? No, that's a dead cricket. You're all thinking, <laughs> what the hell is Strange Invaders? This is a very strange 1983 film starring American Graffiti's Paula Matt, who's going in search of his ex-wife. And he goes to this town where everybody's acting real mysterious. Well, it turns out there's a reason because they're aliens who arrived on Earth in the 50s and are still there in the 80s. And this is one of those 80s movies, like every movie in the 80s, which was paying homage to 1950s sci-fi. You know how we're obsessed with the 80s now? When everything you see is like 80s homage? Well, back then, everything was a 50s homage. The restaurants were like 50s diners, and the movies were all about the 50s sci-fi. Well, this is one of them. But this is kind of like an accessible liquid sky. Like you can actually follow the plot, know what's going on. 
And um, <laughs> what's great is it had a bunch of, um, of, of cast that were all these 50 stars. It was like a Joe Dante, a Joe Dante movie because you had like Ken Toby was in it and mm. uh, you had June Lockhart. And um, of course, who, you know, one of the really creepy, freaky aliens, Louise Fletcher, you know, Dave Rigor, you know, she's the bad guy immediately because it's Louise Fletcher. So um, it was, Fletcher, it, I don't even know her. It, it, it's a very hard movie to find. Uh, Twilight Time put it out um, a couple of years ago. I have because, it on Blu-ray. Yes, yeah, so, so do I. And uh, because it was an Orion Pictures release, I don't think it did. It did virtually no business. Um but it actually is a really good little sci-fi movie along the lines of what we've been saying they wouldn't make anymore. No. And, um, you know, it has some special effects from some of the guys who worked on uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. It yeah. looks like it. Um, but that's OK, because that's not what it's about. And, um, you know, it takes all those sort of tropes of like invaders from Mars and uh, this island earth and, and it has a lot of fun with them and at the same time it's a little spooky it's a little scary and um it, it's another movie that you probably haven't seen uh that you should seek out because you might really enjoy it mm-hmm. i think that's a that's a good representation of this film. you're not a fan are you darren toxman um i i've seen it once and i think that was enough for me it's it's good okay not really my cup of tea but that's okay no i understand smart and clever okay so <laughs> Wait no, a minute. No, I, right. it's not everyone's cup Mr. of tea. Mr. Moonraker. <laughs> Touche. Okay. <laughs> Number 89, Rob Burnett is back. And this time he's not confused. Tell us what we've won. Okay. Well, okay. First of all, I have to say, this is a film that really knocked me out when I saw it. It's really a Swedish. It's a Swedish science fiction f- film called Anara. <laughs> Hej då, jorden. Vi är som seglat längre ut i rymdhavet än någon för oss. Det som har inträffat är mycket osannolikt. Vi har haft en incident. Vi har hamnat ur kurs och kan inte vända tillbaka. I don't know how to pronounce it properly. It's I say Anara, Aniara, Anara, whatever. Um, it is a Swedish science fiction film that is set in a, uh, a Earth has been ravaged by global warming and, and ecological catastrophe. So everyone's moving to Mars. And get your ass uh, to Mars. Yeah. And everyone's getting on a, a giant, basically a beautiful cruise ship luxurious cruise ship spaceship that's going to take our our characters on a three-week a three-week tour to mars (laughs) and um 
you think everything is going to be great. It's all luscious and great food and great entertainment, all kinds of crazy stuff that you'd have on a space cruise ship. And then there's a the, the ship has to avoid space debris and it has its nuclear reactor destroyed where the nuclear the reactors and the ship has no ability to function or control itself. And you very quickly realize that this ship is never going to reach its destination. It is never going to it. It, it can't save itself. There's nobody that can rescue them. Mm. And it is it is going off into the cosmic void. Mm. And when I was watching this, understanding about uh, stellar navigation, I, I I literally was crouching. I was watching with Elizabeth and I'm crouching behind my my hands. I'm like, these people are never going to get out of this. I had no idea where it was going to go. And I'm like, uh, it, it was so stressful. When I was watching this movie, I was I was under such stress. And you realize this ship, they have no future. They have no there is no one that's going to rescue them mm-hmm. and they're going to run out of everything that's going to feed them. And, and nothing good is ever going to happen to these people. And it's all about when the, when the, when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. And I, I have to say, I became obsessed with this movie. I watched it three times in a week. Wow. And I, I loved it so much because seldom does science fiction ever portray the infinitude of the universe the way this movie does and, and what it really means to, to, to boldly go where no one has gone before, because the universe is a, the the distances, it will crush our souls and, and this film to see what happens to the people on the ship and where it goes. It's both tragic, fascinating, beautiful and even the way it ended uh i thought was beautiful and it is look if you're prone to depression or you're not having a good week don't watch this movie i mean i i i i I think you should make a nice pitcher of lemonade make some hot dogs whatever your comfort food is make sure you feel good before you turn this movie on, because by the end of it, you'll be questioning our, not your life, but all of humanity's existence in the cosmos. Well, that's so funny because when you first started describing it, I thought it was like that awful HBO uh, uh, show with Hugh Laurie Avenue, whatever that was. Well, I thought right. they, uh, they, I thought that that show was a complete ripoff of this movie. Oh, yeah. interesting. I, I thought that they saw this movie and they're like, we're going to do the funny version of this. Right. And yeah. not make it funny. <laughs> not yeah, make it yeah. funny. The would be funny version. No, and and I I I I was actually when I I watched the first episode, I'm like, this is a ripoff. Mm, yeah. Interesting. I was I was really angry about it, but I think this film is. I mean, <laughs> this film is basically what it's like to try and get independent movies made in Hollywood today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, well, as we continue our countdown, we're gonna. Um, at to the, we're almost at the end of the first episode. Um, no, we're, we're not. Gonna, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes, we are. We, we, okay. we're, end, we're almost at the end of the first episode. So um, uh, with number 9088, uh, Darren Dockman, tell us 9088. What, what 88 uh, is. 88. 88, double infinity. We're going back in time to 
before the before time. Uh, we're going to basically the year that uh, Dr. Emmett Brown invented time travel. We're going to 1955. And uh, if any of you have seen this film, it's probably in another guise. Uh, maybe it was on the... Uh, Don't uh, even bring this up. For shame, Darren. Don't same. even say this. No, I'm going to. I he's can say whatever that. I want. He paid for this maybe microphone. Maybe he's a Wait, no, uh, This is a classic sci-fi movie. Okay. That has been used in other ways. I'm calm down. It's first iteration is brilliant and it is completely ripe for a really cool remake it really is it's called this island earth the two of you are beginning a strange journey a journey that no earth people have ever undertaken before universal international presents the most startling the most imaginative and suspenseful science fiction drama ever brought to the screen You'll marvel at the superior intelligence that unleashes its deadly ray. Or can kidnap an airplane in flight. They're pulling us up. Prisoners hurtling through endless space, speeding toward the unearthly furies of a planet gone mad. See sights never before dreamed by man. The battle between guided meteors and deadly rays. They're gonna hit us! They're gonna hit us! A planet doomed to destruction. While captive Earth people fight for their lives. It is indeed typical that you Earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Run, Ruth, run! Now, the setup of this movie is so cool. How cool it is, is it? It's really cool, and I'll <laughs> tell you why. Um, it, it basically has the supposition that there are aliens on Earth working secretly to try and help the war effort on their home planet. How cool is that? It's pretty I mean, cool. that's a great thing. And the way we are brought into the story is uh, this uh, sort of scientist fighter pilot uh, dude uh, play, <laughs> played by uh, Rex Reason, uh, the brother to Rhodes Reason, who was uh, Flavius in Star Trek. Um, Merry Christmas from the Reason family. Not to be confused with Flava Flavius, who, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yes, not to be confused with him either. Um, <laughs> Rex Reason plays this scientist who has an assistant. And one day they get this catalog from an, an electronics company. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and, and apparently there's instructions on how to build this machine called an interocitor, which is a, a great science fiction uh, uh, idea in the first place. It can yeah. do everything. It can, it, it can uh, transmit uh, visual uh, messages across hundreds of miles. It, uh, it can uh, zap and, and destroy books. It can, it can do all sorts of strange things that they 
really don't go into much, but uh, it's described to us as, uh, you know, being the next best thing since sliced bread. And they've been trying to, um, they've been trying to uh, harness the power of the atom for electrical, uh, practical uh, uh, devices. The almighty and so, atom? The, the mighty atom. And, um, but, you know, this electronics company masquerades as, uh, as this test to see if they can build this interocitor. And they do, and they find out that it's a direct link to the head of the aliens living here on Earth. They don't know what's going on, but uh, they invite uh, Dr. Cal Meacham, who uh, Rex Reason plays, to their headquarters somewhere in Georgia, maybe. We don't really know where it is, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's this house on top of a mountain. And he, he goes there, he meets some people that uh, uh, he knows one of them, and there are some other famous scientists there, but they're all acting very strangely, <laughs> very strangely indeed. And uh, so as the, uh, as the layers of this uh, mystery are revealed, uh, we get into some trouble and we, uh, we find out what the real reason that these uh, uh, people- Is that a fun? Yes. The real reason? The real reason. Uh, the real reason that these uh, aliens are here, they're from a planet called Metaluna. And uh, we find out the wondrous secret behind all of this. And it's pretty cool. And oh my God, it would make a great remake. Uh, I to, hope that happens. That'd be to amazing. Do it seriously, mysteriously. And uh, to do Denis it. evil news, this island and, Earth. Oh, no, thanks. I don't want to make it boring. Um, oh. I'd like to see I'd like to see a modern retelling of this story because it's really cool. A lot of these 50 sci-fi movies would make great remakes. The problem is that at this point, nobody wants to remake that IP because people don't know the films like even this island earth for me. It's funny. I remember the cover of Starlog bit and I remember the movie yep. just like yeah. I did with uh, when worlds collide. It's like the reason I hadn't seen it when I saw the cover of Starlog and I'm like, I remember it being all green and everything. And, and I was just like, Oh man, this looks awesome! And I sought it out because I remembered that cover of Starlog. Well, you got that landscape with the flying saucer yeah. and the 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 and Metaluna, and 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 of course, one of the most iconic aliens. Uh, it used to be one of the most iconic alien monsters ever right. that most people don't even know anymore. Yeah. But yeah. when we were growing up, because we're old, uh, the Metaluna <laughs> mutant was I'd one of the great sci-fi monsters Mut ever. Mutant. Because right, it was, you're right. it Mutant. was mutante. It was, it was because it was an insect that they that they mutated into the, a human. So, yes, and it, it's it's funny that um, it was going to be a lot more complex than that, but they ran out of money, so they just gave him gray pants. <laughs> and yeah, but that head. I want to stop Rob right there with this idea that we're old, and that's why we know. No, we are the professors of sci-fi 101. You're right. We, we, are, we, we, we have, know we have our a doctorate shits. in Sci-Fi 101. And, you know, I've seen a lot of these lists. It's true. And, and I feel that they're missing, really, some of the key key films that we're talking about because people don't know them. They haven't seen them. They don't, yeah. you know, um, especially these 50s films, which are so important because so much of the later movies are built on the back of them. Oh, you're you're right. And, and I, I find, you know, you just, Mark, you bring up a good point. I mean... 
when we were growing up, there was no we didn't have any prejudice against older films. No. Right. Like like for me, when I was a kid, my favorite sci fi movies were from the 50s and 60s. And I wasn't even born yet. And uh, I love those films because and they because played they, them on TV because they were cheap. Yeah, they were cheap and they played them on TV, but they were the only thing going. And yeah. and, you know, that's why it's hard to explain to people what Star Wars meant to a generation of of all of us, because it was like nothing. There was right. nothing. No one had ever seen anything like that before. It didn't exist. Yeah. Star Wars our, didn't exist. Our and, science fiction brains existed on a, a small uh, sugar drip that sustained it for many years until yeah. Star Wars just gave us the big blast. It's like we were getting an IV of sci-fi of sci and then Star Wars was yes. suddenly <laughs> La, Grand, La Grand Bouffe. We suddenly exactly had this said. giant meal. But it, but it, it, it never was ended. But it was interesting because it, never it, was, it was also because the technology, I mean, the Dijkstra Flex camera um, didn't exist. And using computer technology to do uh, that, the, the model work and all that, it, it, it couldn't have happened before. And so, you know, I go back to a movie called Wild Wild Planet that should be on this list, but it's not. No, it, it should be. But yeah, it should. Come no, on. It's great. No, no, it it's great. It's great. <laughs> a Franco Italian co-production from 1965. If you watch it now, it's goofy as hell. But there's a lot of ideas that, again, have been pilloried or not pilloried, pillared, pillared. Pilfered, pillaged, pilfered, pillaged, taken away. Um, it, it's just it was it was an interesting time to be alive because we saw that transition. It was a very delicate time. Well, we, I, I mean, it went. Wait, it, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Not tonight. Um, <laughs> OK, so that was this island Earth, our pick for number 88, which, you know, we're going to stay in the 50s. With number 87, this is the original The Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World. This is the spot where it was first seen. And these are the first people who saw the thing. How did it get here? Where did it come from? What is it? That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like I can't me. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got... Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions. Astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. And if you like carrots, you're going to want to get your fill of vegetables in this movie. Now, again, this is another movie that you work, you have to watch to a certain lens because this is actually a great story based on uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Who Goes Who There. Goes there? Um, 
Now, it took a lot of liberties because there were certain things you couldn't do, both technologically yeah. and uh, uh, um, socially in a movie like this. Um, but uh, it is wildly entertaining. And James Arness plays the titular thing. Not as exciting as Matilda May playing, no, play, but uh, what uh, is. But, uh, but um, it, it's a really enjoyable film. Um, you know, claustrophobic. They're stuck up at the North Pole, and there is this alien um that is loose on the base and wants to uh, wants to kill them but it, it, it's that classic kind of 50s story where it's the scientists versus the military and who's right and who's wrong and how will they survive and it becomes kind of that who not only who goes there but that uh you know that slow um people being picked off one at a time and uh what's going to happen it's, and it's a terrific movie and again one i discovered very young and it is um what's wonderful is how different it is from the John Carpenter film. Um, They're both uh, very unique in their own ways. And this has largely been forgotten. It was only a year or two ago that finally Warner archives put it out on Blu-ray. But it was pretty much out of circulation for a while. And uh, it's a terrific little film, you know, anchored by uh, Ken Toby, who, you know, had quite a bit of notoriety from this film for a long time. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier with the, uh, Strange Invaders, you know, he was doing a lot of cameos, sort of, um, uh, especially in the 80s, in TV shows and things, sort of parlaying off his notoriety from this film. Well, because the directors of those films uh, grew up with him uh, and in specifically in this movie. Yeah, what's great about the film, this is sort of a poltergeist situation, where it's credited to Christian Nyby, uh, right. when in fact most people largely believe at least the majority of the film was directed by the great Howard Hawks, who was the producer. And right. you can kind of tell because Howard Hawks was famous for his uh, overlapping dialogue, you know, which you see in movies like The Big Sleep and The Philadelphia Story, and is very much a hallmark of the thing. And I think what I love about um, the thing is it does have that screwball comedy kind of a uh, 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 character orientation that a lot of sci-fi movies don't. And that, you know, that overlapping dialogue that you see in like her, His Girl Friday or some of the Hawksy classics. I, you know, I wouldn't put this in the top tier A-list uh, Howard Hawks, but, uh, you know, to me, it's not as great as something like The Big Sleep or, you know, Her Girl Friday, but it, it is a wonderful sci-fi film and it does have some great dialogue and some great character work and a really great villain. Agreed. Totally agree. Love it. Cool. Well, that brings us to Ashley again with number 86 as we close in on number 85, which will end tonight's broadcast. Okay. Uh, number 86, I swear to God, this is like like the 101 greatest Wednesdays in the 430 movie of all time. Uh, because number number 86 is it's a it's a true little gem. Um that uh, that a lot of people haven't seen, but it is a, a totally terrific science fiction thriller horror um, that uh, is uh, it's look, it's it's kind of it's a science fiction fugitive film um, that came out in uh, 1987 uh, and it's called The Hidden. I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. 
something strange is happening to some ordinary people. Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, rob a bank? He's a law-abiding taxpayer, minding his own business. Killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure enough hell's him. I've worked homicide for 13 years. I have never seen anything like this. You trying to tell me that she's part of this? Step out of the car slow. want answers and I want them now. Explanation won't help you. I want to know why it takes 15 shots to take down some sold out stripper. Why three law-abiding citizens all of a sudden go crazy and start killing people. We're talking spacemen here. Something gets in his way, he kills us. Finds a body. Gets inside, uses it to move around. Try for one on the tire. Do you think this is easy? Why don't you try it? Bye. I guess a career in the police didn't really prepare you for this, did it? The Hidden. You think it's over now? You're wrong. And The Hidden is basically about an alien fugitive who comes to Earth and joyrides his way. Like, he basically takes possession of people and he joyrides his way uh, across Los Angeles. Um, and, like, literally and figuratively, like, possessing one body after the next. Men, women, old, young, it doesn't matter. Hot, like, not hot. It, he doesn't care. He like he lives fast. He lives hard. He burns should, them out. He drives great cars. He listens to awesome music. We should point out, dude, he's the audience that the movie is directed to. Yeah, he was. He, he, he's a character that wants to uh, find strippers with big boobs, listen to heavy metal music, drive Ferraris, and he wants to be president of the United States. You're goddamn right. He does. It's fantastic. And he is being doggedly pursued. <laughs> by his Javert, right? By by Kyle McLaughlin, who is playing another, like, who's uh, basically an alien, like, energy ball that also possesses people, that possesses uh, an FBI agent, of all things, um, who, uh, who tracks him across Los Angeles uh, to bring him to justice. And it's just, it is just a Because cool... our, our, our antagonist killed his wife. Yes, exactly. So he's got a personal wife. stake in it. And it kind of, and it, and it, on that level, it works, right? It is just, it's so odd. It is so committed to its concept. It is so much fun. Um, and it's so smart. And it is so much better than it has any right to be. It's one of those movies that like, and it's one of my favorite experiences, right? Is when you're not expecting to find a film that you love and it just comes out of nowhere. Right. It's just look, I mean, back in the day, back when uh, the four of us were kids, there was this whole thing where if you wanted to see a movie at all, you would go to the video store, you would wait. Right. You would stand by the return bins. You would do all of that. And sometimes you just had to settle. 
right? You just had to pick something up because you knew you wanted to watch something that night and like you couldn't get like the major release that had come out or whatever. And for me, that was the hidden, right? I needed something to watch. I saw like, you know, this movie on VHS, I picked it up, I took it home, I watched it and I fell in love. Um, it is eminently watchable. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's awesome. Well, you know what you just brought up? Mm. I, I really, maybe this is part of a shared universe and Dale Cooper is the same character from The Hidden. Maybe Dale Cooper is an alien. I like to think that in my heart of hearts. I, You, you know, one of the things I love about this movie is I discovered a band called Concrete Blonde because of this film. Mm. And their song Still in Hollywood is in this movie. This movie opens with a car chase with a black Ferrari. Uh, smashing through glass, driving through MacArthur Park and slamming into a, a cadre of L.A. police cars. And I mean, it, this film is it was part of what New Line Cinema was doing in, from the mid 80s when they started in 1984 with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. They were making great, really unique, interesting, theatrically released genre films yep. and you know, Jack Shoulder, who had directed Nightmare 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed this right. film. He also went on to direct By Dawn's Early Light. Um, this, this movie is exactly why you went to theaters to see B science fiction. And what John Carpenter was doing, if Carpenter, Carpenter could have made this movie after Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. Yeah. And uh, he had moved on to studio films. But man, Having this coming out from New Line, this was such a blast of fresh air at the multiplex. I saw this movie opening night. I love this film. I still love this movie. It's, uh, by the way, Warner Archive has released a great Blu-ray of it, so you can get it. A tremendous film. Well, it's too bad that this was not the last uh, movie in our list for uh, this episode, because we could end with, bye. But... um... I think this next one is a good ending for the podcast episode. Well, an even better ending. Well. <laughs> yeah. It's um, a blast. It's <laughs> literally it's a we're, blast. We're leaving no stone unturned. Um, it is the 1970 first sequel to Planet of the Apes. It is the amazing beneath the Planet of the Apes. planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. Damn you all to The year, 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut, space-wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. They're marked for target practice. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor. Trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominate the Earth. 
a planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Where are you going? Into the Forbidden Zone. Someone or something has outwitted the intelligence of the gorillas. Invade! Invade! Face the terrifying dangers of the Forbidden Zone with them. Engulfing you in the shattering experiences that await beneath the planet of the apes. Well, there's an intelligence working in this place. They know we're here. We are determined to know what the apes want. War or peace? The superintelligent mutants. Are they human or something else? In their church, an unspeakable god. Doomsday bomb. Behind their faces, an unbearable secret. We don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. The irresistible war machine of the guerrilla army versus the devastating secret mind weapons of the subterranean mutants in civilization's final battle to answer the ultimate question. Can a planet long endure half human and half ape? Is it the beginning or the end? Bless the Holy Fallout. Just when you thought you knew everything about the planet of the apes, <laughs> they take it and they flip it up on its head. Um, because what an interesting uh, devolution of the, of the idea of this film. Uh, now we learn that there is an underground community of uh, basically radioactive human beings who live underneath the forbidden zone and uh, are as scared of the apes as the apes are of them. Um, but our, our new character, uh, Brent, uh, James Franciscus shows up looking for Taylor and his, uh, and his shipmates. Um, and, uh, what we find out is we, we see again the uh, realization that it's a planet of apes through James Franciscus's eyes. But then uh, we learn that uh, the fate of Taylor, Taylor falls in with these uh, radioactive people, literally, uh, and uh, is captured by them. And Franciscus goes another route and goes through the subways of New York to discover them. And man, oh man, what a fascinating science fiction idea this is. It's basically a cult of humans that worship an atomic bomb. Um, and the, the story is so wacky and so out of this world. Your normal studio fair. Yeah. Can you imagine absolutely. pitching this to a oh development my God. executive You could today? never do anything like that. And especially since- I can imagine was, pitching it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially I don't know when the word Gonzo was invented, but it was invented for this movie as far as I'm concerned. And this also could, defines Chekhov's gun. You know, let's introduce <laughs> a nuclear bomb. missile. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to go off at some point, right? I guess. Hmm. 
Probably. Only maybe. if your star actor doesn't want to come back. I guess it does. <laughs> but what's, what's great is that um, Charlton Heston agreed to do 15 minutes in the movie. And that's it. And uh, you can see every minute they made use of him. And it's so, it's so wacky. It's so crazy. Um, you would think that it would be cheaper to do this movie because we have less apes in it and less uh, expensive uh, prosthetic. No, no. We have something even worse. We have horribly deformed uh, uh, humans with, with masks for their faces. We have Victor Buono covered in late. <laughs> um, it wasn't the first time. <laughs> but, uh, but it's so much fun. And the, the funny thing is I got into the Planet of the Apes movies, not through watching the movies, but through the Power Records book yeah. and record sets. <laughs> I had all of those before I saw the movies. And I listened to them over and over again. So I had all the dialogue memorized already by the time I went to see the movie. And what an interesting way to sort of be introduced to it, because I knew what was going on. I knew the stories and seeing them realized in real life uh, after knowing the stories was really a fascinating way to get introduced to these things. See, the movie for me was a trade off. Like, unfortunately, you didn't have Roddy McDowell as Cornelius. So it goes down a little bit. But you yes. did have James Gregory as Ursus. So that was kind of cool. Right. Live 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 they do. Of James Gregory <laughs> here on the uh, on the podcast yeah. uh, um, from uh, Dagger of the Mind. And uh, then, uh, you know, you don't really have, you know, you have James Franciscus, who's sort of a, a Taylor substitute. Yeah. Um, but then you get Charlton Heston for a little bit. And of course, you got Nova, who looks like she's found a salon since the last movie. Uh, it helps to be the girlfriend of the president of the studio. Because all of a sudden, this oh, Charlie has had to clean her up to have his way with her. Like, you know, she she had to be cleaned up. Not not always. He wasn't John Peters. He was Charlie Heston. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But uh, it's so but, much fun. And it's and it's uh, they 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 wrote it to sort of guarantee that the. Uh, Charlton Heston wouldn't have to be in another one because yes, as we talked about before, they destroy the earth. And how about that great narration at the end? Oh, it's the great. third planet okay. from the sun no longer exists. <laughs> well, but, but also, I mean, this film is really audacious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like if you, if you think about what it's really doing, I mean, the fact that it, it introduces, you don't think that there's anyone in the forbidden zone or whatever. I mean, uh, there's a whole race of human mutants. They're like really pissed off Telosians. I mean, this is yeah. really this is out. This is outlandish. This is yeah. this is so out there. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we miss today in our crazy development executive Ivy League educated business people are telling us what stories we have to write. This would never get made today. No. And I think that when you're watching this as a kid, I remember seeing this movie for the first time. And I'm like, wait, what? I mean, it was so. It That's was just so, why it was so out there, man. And everything that happened, whether you're the the storms in the Forbidden Zone with the flickering colors, and then the mutants and the bomb, and we worship our bomb. I mean, even as a kid, I'm like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> but that's yeah. why today you can predict every move everything that happens and the third acts are so unsatisfying because you've seen it all before and it's just recycling the same tropes yes. right and 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 
you're right because no Harvard educated development exact or any you say you, where prove to us there's like there's a very big successful filmmaker out there who you would know um, who who literally uh, when he's uh, 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 finalizing a script needs to see how every beat worked in another movie that was successful. So oh this is from Raiders this is from this this is and 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 it's kind of a Mad Libs inversion of all you know but what's so great about all these movies we're talking about, particularly beneath the Pontiacs is it's there's there's been nothing like it ever. And there never (laughs) will be again. No, it's so insane. And it doesn't make it great, but it makes it just completely like you could never have predicted that at the end, well, we're going to knock off bridge on the river Kwai when Charlton Heston falls on the triggering device that detonates a nuclear bomb that wipes out the entire planet. I mean, Oops. what the what? Well, yeah. how do we do a sequel to that? Well, the, that brings that brings up a an interesting point that, you know, we were all watching these things as youngsters and the 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 impact that they had on us was what made us become, well, imagination connoisseurs that made us love this stuff because it was so unpredictable. Yeah. You never knew where you were going to go, where they were going to take you, what you wound up with. Now, we all know 10 minutes into a movie how it's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all of this genre stuff, we all know how it's going to end because we've seen all of it before. And in a way, I do kind of think that's contributing to the death of cinema. That's, that's true. Yeah. And that's why something like Squid Game did so well, because it's so original, even though, yes, it's a little Battle Royale and yes, it's a little Hunger Games. Ultimately, it kind of is about something more than that. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so I think people were so excited to embrace something that felt fresh and different and original. And also the fact that, you know, it does things that any studio would never you can't like kill 50 people in a children's game in a park, you know, it's like, that, you know, it's like, I, and, and it did that and it went there. And I think that's what we respect so much about something like beneath the planet Apes, which, you know, is not a great movie, but it, 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 we respect but it. It's and audacious. It's audacious. Right. Yeah. And here's the Especially other thing. Especially as a sequel. But yeah, like today, no... nobody would ever. They're like, well, we look at Planet of the Apes. And we saw what made it. We, we are we, our marketing department. Our analytics tell us this. You can't make Beneath the Planet of the Apes as a sequel. No. Plus, can't also, that. We're, we're too young to have seen in a theater. So, you know, the thing is, can That's you imagine true. being an audience member coming while well, you saw in a theater? Absolutely. At oh, the Go Ape well, Festival. Well, no, okay. I don't mean oh, that. No, I mean, no, when it like came out. First run. Before you see it for the first time. And I didn't see it for the first time in a theater. You saw it the first time in a theater. So what, yeah. what was it like? To see that ending and come out of the theater. It was freaking amazing and scary. He'd already heard the Power Records stories, who he knew. Yeah, no, I I knew what was going on, but it was freaking scary. The point I'm making in 1970, seeing the movie and walking out of the theater, what that must have been like. You can't sell a toy to that person. I mean, (laughs) well, you can. Well, no, but a lot of those people that did later when we had the animated series and Mego made the toys. That's right, because we bought the Mego figures because the animated and because it's, it's, apes who could talk right but could you know now who's going to buy the merchandise to a movie which ends with the entire planet being it's hard to continue the adventure if if the earth is wiped out 
You know, uh, you're oh, going to really God. buy the treehouse and the figures if Earth is, <laughs> you know, is gone well, and the characters are all dead. Like, yeah. So I'm just saying it's, it's really hard when the ancillaries and the IP and all that is so important. You know, you're, there's no way you're, you're, you're agreeing to something. Right, Steve Asbell? There's no way you're saying yes <laughs> to something like this. Well, let me let me ask you guys something. To, to, mm-hmm. I mean, we're ending the show this this episode, but yes. I would say that we lived in a time as children, whereas we just you know pointed out uh, for those movies that came out when we were young, the the craziness hearts, of the See, content. I say when we're young, we said live and let live. Well, the the craziness, the content, the things that we would see, you never know what you were going to get, and it was kind of there was an excitement and uh, with ideas mm-hmm. like the the things that we got to see were not pre-programmed and they were not something that fit into the save the cat sid field you know uh it, you, you just didn't know what you were gonna Absolutely get even, no cats were saved during even, look, even, in fact even, all the cats even, died in- even james bond fought big bad voodoo daddy it's not like he went to space or anything <laughs> oh wait <laughs> but i mean it was i, I feel like now we do live in a time when stories are the only stories that get made are pre-digested. Yeah. We already know we are, we, the audience already know what the story, what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. I, I mean, we, cause we've seen it. It's just, it's just the same tropes repeated over and over and over again. Audiences and, go to movies to be reassured. Now. Well, at least that's the theory. Right. But it's like, but if, if audiences have stopped going to movies and they're stopping, it means that it's because on some level we have lost our ability to surprise them. Mm. Right. That's and I don't, I, and well, I don't know. No. That, or, or lost the desire to surprise. lost the desire. To no, it's, it's not that I think we do. It's just the movies. I mean, look at, look at what we're dealing with now. Studio, studio films. These were all, we're, Studio movies, 20th Century Fox put out Beneath the Planet of the Apes, man. I mean, they'd put out Patton in the same year. Yeah, yeah. You know, RKO put out The Thing. New Line put out The Hidden. Warner Brothers put out Omega Man. Paramount put out Barbarella. I mean, you're right. These studios were putting this stuff out nowadays because movies have become so expensive. You know, we you used to be able to go see The Hidden was a new line movie that probably cost well, less than 10 million bucks, but it was fun. You know, you go see it. There was a verve. There was a wit to it. You didn't know what was going to happen. Nowadays, a studio can't make a movie unless it costs $100 million. And if it costs $100 million, you can't destroy you, the earth at the end. No. And you have to have it all. You can't even not just destroy the earth. Every single beat of a movie has to be familiar now. Mm-hmm. Every single you can't surprise an audience yeah, at all. Absolutely. Well, a lot of these films that we're going to be covering in the next few episodes are going to surprise you and delight you and infuriate you. But you won't know <laughs> unless you tune in to part two of our top 21 countdown coming at you in our very next episode. So on behalf of Robert Burnett, Ashley Edward Miller, myself, Mark Altman and Darren Dockerman, we want to. Big shout out to Bill Ritter for putting this together in post. Our producers, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Raggetts, and Natalie Miscali, and you, the audience, for making it this far. 
kudos to you. You're the real stars. And for waiting for these episodes to download. So until, I don't know what kind of Wi-Fi you have. It downloads like no time. So uh, until next time, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course, and we'll see you for part two in our very next episode. Of a white Christmas, yeah. Just like the ones I I, I used to know. Oh, yeah. With the treetops glisten. And and the children listen. To hear sleigh bells in the snow. listening to the Electric Surge Network.